Alright guys, time for another episode, finally, of the Consistent Calvinism Podcast. We're going to go back to responding to Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101. He put out an episode recently titled, Calvinism is Bafflingly Inconsistent. And since we're doing the Consistent Calvinism Podcast, obviously I'm going to take accusations of inconsistency extremely seriously. Um, I want to make it clear from the start here, this might be a long episode, I'm not sure yet. Just a warning, as if, you know, most of these episodes aren't long probably used to it by now. Um, There's a lot of important things that need to be said. I also want to make it clear that I will not only be answering sufficiently all of these accusations of inconsistency, but I will also, most of the time, be turning this back on the other side, because a lot of people, once again, fail to stop and realize that these are ultimate topics. These are ultimate questions that all Christians need to address, right? It just blows my mind how the free will side seems to think once again, that free will is a magic wand that they can wave wave around and just, you know, appeal to mystery and pretend like these problems don't exist, and then have the audacity to continually criticize Calvinists who just man up and tell it like it is, right? And that's what we do in this podcast, is we tell it like it is. We're consistent, both biblically and logically. Um, if, if something is inconsistent, it is false by definition, right? So if somebody's going to accuse my position of being inconsistent, I want to know how it's inconsistent so that I can either prove them wrong, or if I can't prove them wrong, I need to modify, I need to adapt my worldview to what is true, right, to what is consistent. And I also want to point out that when I turn this back on the other side, uh, Leighton Flowers commonly refers to this this quote-unquote U2 fallacy, okay? The U2 fallacy is when you don't, it's when you fail to provide an answer, and immediately, right, without providing an answer, flip the question back to the other side, and then Basically, you're hoping one of two things. Number one, that uh, it'll just distract away from your inability to answer it. Or number two, uh, try to fool people into thinking that, well, if they can't answer it, then you don't have to answer it either. That's a YouTube fallacy. What is not a YouTube fallacy is what I will be doing in this episode. I will be answering first sufficiently from my side. And then after giving the answers from my side, demonstrating logical consistency and stability on all of these topics, I will be flipping it back around because these are applicable to the other side, whether they realize it or not. So with that said, let's jump straight in and hear what Leighton's first point is. Uh, That's what the provisionist perspective is that Drew and Eric over there. And that's what he's pointing out, how blatantly inconsistent this is. Because how can something that God immutably predestined for his own self-glorification rob God of his glory? Think about this. On Calvinism, Everything happens in accordance with God's divine, sovereign, unchangeable decree. Therefore, God has decreed for people to rob him of his glory in order to glorify himself. If that's not blatantly inconsistent, then what is? Now, this, this first point is probably the worst point out of all the points we're going to get to. And it's, it's, it's almost painful that I would have to explain this. Uh, first and most obviously, um, Calvinists are not saying that sin in and of itself glorifies God. Right? I don't know how anybody could come away thinking that. I don't know of any Calvinists that have said that. If they have, if they have shame on them, it's a blasphemous statement. Sin, by definition, is, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with the phrase, robbing God of his glory. Yes, that's exactly what sin does. Right? Um, and I'm going to get to this idea of what does it mean for God to be glorified or not glorified as a second point. But just, just right off the bat, the only way that there would be any sort of inconsistency here is if Calvinists were saying that sin glorified God. Because then we'd be saying that God determined something that both at the same time in the same instance 
glorified him and didn't glorify him, right? Glorified him and robbed him of glory at the same time in the same instance. That would be a contradiction. That would be inconsistent. But that is most obviously what Cal not what Calvinists are saying, right? When we say that God has determined all things for his glory, right? There, there, there's an understanding there that we mean what Paul meant in Romans eleven thirty six, right? From him and through him or to him are all things, yes, all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. Now, was Paul teaching that sin glorified God? Of course not, right? Of course not. Um, but was Paul teaching that all things will ultimately, at some point, glorify God? Absolutely. And that's, that's the obvious key here, right? We're not saying that God is being robbed of glory and glorified at the same time. We're not saying sin glorifies God in and of itself. But what we are saying is that God can determine sinful actions and that those sinful actions will later on down the road result in God being glorified. In fact, that is the entire point of the context of Romans 11. Romans 11 is about the disobedience of Israel, right? Obviously, in verse 32, Paul says that God himself consigned them all to disobedience, that he might show mercy on all. Now, we can argue the extent of the word all later on, but the point is that God had a purpose in their disobedience. God had a purpose in their sinful actions. God had a purpose in the things that robbed him of glory, and that purpose was his eventual glorification and the salvation of sinners. And he concludes the chapter, therefore, by saying that from God and through God and to God are all things, even the disobedience of Israel, and yet says, to him be the glory forever, amen. Not just, just be honest about it. Was he teaching that their disobedience glorified God? No. But was he teaching that their disobedience would result in God being glorified? Of course. And the most obvious, I mean, I thought this was like, like all Christians understood this, right? I mean, just stop and think about this once again. Let's pretend the universe doesn't exist. And God wants to demonstrate his glory. He wants to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. He wants to show mercy and grace to sinners. Well, in order for God to be able to glorify himself in that way, there needs to be sinners who exist and who sin and who rob him of glory in the process of sinning so that he can show mercy and grace to them and glorify himself in their salvation, right? There's, there's nothing inconsistent about that at all. So it's just, I thought it was basic Christian belief that yes, God has brought about things that don't glorify him so that he can be glorified in particular ways. Now, the second point that I need to make very briefly here um, before I actually get into biblical examples, which completely demonstrate what I just said, that God most certainly does determine uh, sin, and yet he will be glorified at a certain point as a result of that sin. Plenty of biblical examples to demonstrate that. But before I do, I want to stop for a moment and talk about this idea of what does it mean for God to be glorified or not be glorified? What does it mean for God to receive glory or to get glory or to be robbed of glory? Right? I think this flies over a lot of people's heads and they just... just have this wrong understanding of what, what it means for God to be glorified. Once again, start with the basics. Before the universe existed, was God glorious? Right? Of course. He, he's, he's, he's as glorious as he can be. Right? He, the Bible says he doesn't change. He's always existed. So he's always been glorious. So what does it mean for God to be glorified? Right? All, we're, all, all the Bible and all Christians are saying when God is glorified is that his glory is revealed. It is demonstrated. Or in the case of when someone like us, like someone such as Christians, when we glorify God, we give recognition to God for what he has done or what he's given us. That's what it means to glorify God. But notice something important. He's not, we're not giving him something he doesn't already have, right? In, in the literal sense. It's not like glory is a substance or an energy or some sort of um, number that he gains or loses, right? That just doesn't make any sense. So 
all we mean as Christians, right? This isn't just Calvinists. This is biblically speaking. You can do a you can do a word search on glory or glorified in the Bible and just see from cover to cover. All it's saying is that God's the glory that's already there is either revealed or not revealed. Now, when God's glory is not revealed, uh, he it's not like he's missing out on something. It's not like he's lacking something. It's not like it's doing him harm, right? Because again, if God had not created the universe. Uh, humans wouldn't exist, angels wouldn't exist, nobody or no th- no thing outside of God would be quote-unquote glorifying him, and yet he'd still be God, right? He'd still be fine, everything, there's no, no problems here. Um, but God chose to create a universe in which he would receive glory, receive recognition for being God, being the creator, right? And so I just want to say this and get this out of the way, that when Leighton here, I'm perfectly fine with the phrase that sin robs God of his glory. What does it mean for God to be robbed of glory? It just means that he's not being given being given the recognition that is due to him, right? Uh, when you do the word search uh, on the word glory, uh, one of the things the only the only verses I could find that actually speak of glory as being something that God gets or gains is the Exodus account of Pharaoh, and he basically says, "I will pursue Pharaoh, destroy him and his army, and I will gain glory for myself." Right? That doesn't mean he's going to be like leveling up. Right? He's not like playing a video game and scoring points. He's not getting better. He's not becoming more glorious when he does that. All that means is that the news, uh, as Romans 9 says, that my name and my, uh, why, did Pharaoh, why did I raise Pharaoh up? So that my name and my power would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So as news of the story spreads, God gains glory, quote unquote. He, he gains recognition, right? And so this, this is all we mean. And so when God is robbed of glory, when people sin, he's not being given recognition, right? We, we give ourselves recognition or other people recognition or false idols recognition. We're glorifying other people, other things. It's not like we're, we're robbing God of glory in the sense of not giving it, not giving him what is due to him, but it's not something that is being stripped of God. It's not like we, you know, sneak into God's backyard at night and steal a bag of glory from him. That's not what's been going, that's not what's going on when we say we're robbing God of his glory. So bring that all back to what Leighton says here and see if this makes a little more sense. Therefore, God has decreed for people to rob him of his glory in order to glorify himself. If that's not blatantly inconsistent, then what is? Uh, if that's blatantly inconsistent, then the entire reason God created this universe is blatantly inconsistent. Because the Bible teaches that the apex of creation, the the primary purpose that the universe exists, is to glorify God in the salvation of sinners, which I already pointed out can only occur and happen if sinners exist. So yes, God did determine that people will, that sinners will exist, that sinners will sin, that sinners will rob him of his glory, so that he can glorify himself. And there's nothing inconsistent about inconsistent about that at all. That's basic Christianity. And with that said, I would like to. I mean, this first point is basically completely destroyed. But I want to hammer this home because it's going to lead into his other accusations of inconsistency, um, and just show some very clear biblical examples. So the first example that Calvinists always bring up. Um, and for good reason, is the crucifixion of Christ, right? The entire affair, him being mocked, beaten, spit on, tortured, and eventually murdered, right? The crucifixion itself. Uh, Calvinists bring this up to show that the Bible in in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, blatantly declares, right, that God predestined these things to occur. Okay, so I'm just going to quote the verse. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan predestined to take place. So here's a whole bunch of different people, right? A lot of different people involved in the crucifixion event as a whole. 
they gather together, right, unknowingly on their part, to do whatever God's hand and plan and predestined to take place. Uh, there's no way for you to make this verse, just in passing here, there's no way for you to make this verse say that God saw what was going to happen and and sort of did what he could with it, right? This verse says that what was what was predestined, what they did, and what did they do? A whole lot of sinning. Possibly, you could argue, the worst sins that have ever occurred. I mean, you can talk about rape and murder and child abuse and all these sorts of emotional things that we look out on the world today and see, but almost inarguably, the most heinous crimes ever committed on this planet were to do the things that were done to Jesus, the sinless, perfect son of God, right? Torturing him, spitting on him, mocking him, and murdering him. Worst sins ever, right? Take all your emotional ideas, throw them out the window. Those are the worst sins ever committed. And the Bible says that God predestined those things. So this passage is a direct refutation of the assumption that God does, first of all, that God never predestines sin, that God is not determined that sin occur. That's just completely destroyed. Now, as a, as a side note, this is a complete distraction, uh, but the other side, and Leighton especially, Leighton Flowers loves to point out, well, just because God predestined one thing, one bad thing, doesn't mean that he predestined all bad things. That is not the point of the Calvinist argument when we, when we bring up the crucifixion. We can prove that, we can have that discussion elsewhere, right? I'm, and I'm happy to discuss it. Does God control all things? Does God determine all things? That's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is to do away with your assumption that God never predestines bad things, or that if God did predestine bad things, or determine bad things, that he would be doing something bad, right? Or that God, you know, somehow can't do that without violating his, his moral nature, or, or all these ridiculous false assumptions. This passage completely destroys it. So when we take this account of the crucifixion and what the Bible says about it, that it was predestined by God, right? Sinful actions of men predestined by God, and understand it in what Leighton mockingly said as being inconsistent. You can see it, that there is no inconsistency whatsoever. God predestined what people did against Jesus, right? So that it could result in him saving sinners and glorifying himself in uh, their salvation and showing grace and mercy to them, right? God is most certainly glorified in those things. He's not glorified in, uh, spitting on Jesus didn't glorify God, right? Torturing Jesus, murdering Jesus, none of those things glorified God. And Calvinists aren't saying that they did. What we're saying is that all things, including sin, will result in the, glor glor the glorification of God, okay? None of it is quote-unquote wasted, so to speak, right? There is no pointless evil. There is no wasted evil. Even at a bare minimum, you can just look to the future and say that sin will be judged, right? God is also glorified in the just condemnation of sin, in unsaved people. He's glorified in both ways. He's glorified in the punishment of sin and in the salvation of sinners from their sin. But back to the point, this completely refutes his claim once again. Therefore, God has decreed for people to rob him of his glory in order to glorify himself? Precisely correct. God has decreed, and in the case of Acts, predestined, that people will rob him of glory by spitting on him and murdering him so that he could glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. If that's not blatantly inconsistent, then what is? Again, it would only be inconsistent if we were saying that the sin itself glorified God, so that it was both glorifying him and not glorifying him at the same time. This has never been what Calvinists have taught. But this first point um, is just completely destroyed. I want to give one more quick example in case, I don't know what it is, this tendency in people to think, well, that's just one and we can sort of throw it aside, but I need more than one. One example should be sufficient to prove a point. But uh, just to bring up the case of Pharaoh, right? We all know the case of Pharaoh. So when we talk about Pharaoh, let's, let's put all these extra arguments aside. Everybody's going to start ranting on about judicial hardening, blah, blah, blah. 
Once again, this point is simple. We can have all sorts of other discussions later. The point is simple. Can God determine? Can God determine that sin will occur? Can God determine that he will be robbed of glory so that he can glorify himself? This is what Leighton considers blatantly or, uh, or bafflingly inconsistent. But the case of Pharaoh is another complete destruction of this accusation, right? It doesn't matter how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't matter why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't matter when or where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The result of heart hardening is always sin. God took an action which resulted in, determinatively resulted in, Pharaoh sinning, robbing him of glory. And why did he do that? What was his purpose in doing that? Nobody's saying what Pharaoh did glorified God. But the result, right? Romans 9 says, For this very purpose I raised you up, that my name and my power might be proclaimed and demonstrated throughout the whole earth. Right? God had a purpose in raising Pharaoh up. The raising up of Pharaoh included all sorts of really horrible things. Right? Including the imprisonment and bondage of God's very people. Lots of really bad stuff that was not glorifying God. And yet God raised Pharaoh up so that he could glorify himself. Once again, there is nothing inconsistent about this at all. This is the Bible cover to cover. Therefore, God has decreed for people to rob him of his glory in order to glorify himself. Therefore, God has determined that Pharaoh will not let the people go, a.k.a. sin and rob him of glory, in order to glorify himself in the rescuing of his people and the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea? If that's not blatantly inconsistent, then what is? Then all of Christianity is inconsistent, right? If that's inconsistent then so is, so, is, so is all of Christianity. But of course, we know that it's not because of the reasons that I have laid out. Once you understand that, number one, Calvinists aren't saying sin glorifies God in and of itself, and number two, when you understand what it means for God to be glorified or, in certain cases, robbed of glory, when you properly understand those things, there is no inconsistency at all. All you have is pure, biblical, reality-based fact. God most certainly can and does and has determined that he be robbed of glory in certain instances so that he can glorify himself in other instances. And so with that answer being given, he goes on um, to once again sort of uh, restate the accusation, but in a slightly different way. I want you to hear the wording of this because the wording is important. And, and how inconsistent it is, demonstrably inconsistent it is, to say that God has brought about something for his own self-glorification that robs him of his glory. Right. See... He's trying to say that the same instance, the same occurrence of something that God brought about, right, which robs him of his glory, is also glorifying him, right? But that's not the, that's not the point that Calvinists are getting across. What we're saying is that God can bring about something that robs him of his glory so that at a later point he can glorify himself, right? And so, again, you just have to be careful with the way these things are worded because the only way this makes actual sense of being inconsistent. Demonstrably inconsistent it is to say that God has brought about something for his own self-glorification that robs him of his glory. Is if we would be referring to the same instance, a particular instance of sin, and saying that sin both glorifies and doesn't glorify him at the same time. And that's just not what's being said. So when we say that God brings about something for his own glorification, once again, God raised Pharaoh up for his own glorification. Does that mean that what was included in the raising up of Pharaoh, that everything that was included in that glorified God? No. The raising up of Pharaoh was so that God could glorify himself. That's, that's the clear point. And, and how inconsistent it is, demonstrably inconsistent it is, to say that God has brought about something for his own self-glorification that robs him of his glory. Yeah. Uh, okay. Explain that one, Calvinist. 
that, that's that's one of those issues that I would like to push back on, if I if I may. Um, and the explanation was extremely simple, right? Uh, God most certainly can, and the Bible teaches cover to cover that God brings about certain things that rob him of his glory, so that he can glorify himself. It was it is impossible, right? It's impossible for God to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners without him first being robbed of glory by sinners sinning, right? It's impossible. And is there? how can you possibly argue that God did not, quote-unquote, bring that about by creating the universe, right? This brings me directly into my, my, my point where I will flip this back on the other side. The other side is going to sit there and say, oh, Calvinism is terrible because God determines that these, that, that these bad things take place, that evil takes place. But you need to remember something. You believe that God allowed it. God had the absolute power to stop any particular evil or anything that would rob him of his glory, but he chose to allow it. And you just need to ask yourself a question. How is that any less determinative? Now, the other side is going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't believe that God determined that it would occur. Allowing it and determining it aren't the same thing. What they mean by that is that God allowing it is not the same thing as God causing it, right? Or actively planning it. But it is still nonetheless determinative, right? It's just a different form of determination. You see, the only difference, ultimately, and this point is extremely critical, the other side thinks, seems to think that they can distance God from evil and completely disconnect him from certain, certain things occurring, and we've gotten in, in all that before. But what you need to realize is that there's o- the only difference between Calvinism and God-determining things and non-Calvinism and God-determining things, free will, is that... Calvinists have God actively determining things, actively planning, actively purposing, and I would even go so far as to say, by his power, actively bringing them about. We have God actively determining things, but the free will side has God reactively determining things. But it's still God determining things, right? If God has the absolute power to stop something, and yet he willingly chooses to not stop it, he willingly chooses to allow it to occur, then he is the ultimate, quote-unquote, filter that all things must pass through, right? It's only going to happen if God allows it to happen, because if he doesn't want it to happen, ultimately, he could stop it. So how can you possibly escape the fact that God, by allowing it to happen, is determining that it happens, right? This is inescapable. And when you look up the definition of determine, right, not determinism, but determine, to determine something, one of the definitions can mean to cause something to occur. No argument. I, I'm, I'm not saying that to determine something can't mean or doesn't mean to cause something to occur. But that's not the only definition. That's not the only thing that can mean to determine something, right? Uh, determine can also mean to, quote-unquote, fix conclusively or authoritatively. And is, is there any possible way to deny that God, by allowing something he could stop, is fixing conclusively the fact that it will happen? And he's doing so authoritatively as God. Again, this is, this is undeniable. There's no way around this. God is determining what will or will not happen by allowing it or not allowing it, okay? Determine can also mean simply to firmly decide something, right? So how can, how can you, again, how can you possibly deny that even if God is permitting things to happen, that he could stop? He, he's firmly deciding that they take place, right? He is making a decision. This either will or will not happen, right? He is deciding, firmly deciding that it take place. So the point here is that the non-Calvinist does not get to escape the, this whole God-determining-things-to-occur point by appealing to the idea of, well, God isn't causing it. That's actually, that's a separate discussion. 
is a it's an important discussion and it's a discussion I'm willing to have, the whole metaphysical discussion of what is God causing or not causing, can things be occurring apart from God's power to begin with? We've, we can talk about that all later on. I am simply pointing to the fact that God is determining everything that occurs, right? Even in a free will worldview. And the free will side is going to shout over and over, no, 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 we don't believe that. We don't believe. I know you don't think you believe it, but logically speaking, you can't escape it, Right? Whether God is actively determining or reactively determining, it's still God determining what will or will not occur. He's still the ultimate being who, with minimal effort, could stop anything that comes to pass. Right? So God is the ultimate power which gets to decide or determine or, as the definition says, fix conclusively what does or does not come to pass, even in the free will view. And, and I just want to say, you know, again, this idea of permission active versus reactive, it can go in so many different directions. We can start talking about, well, if God causes it, would he be responsible? Why isn't he responsible? And I would, I could press the other side as well. Why isn't God responsible for allowing it? Something he could stop. And on and on and on. We have to save that. I'm going to be going too long here if I go down those roads. Uh, we've got plenty of other ways to address those points. My point is extremely simple. Okay? Don't fall for the distractions. The point is that reactive permission from an ultimate being such as God, who could, with minimal effort, stop something, is just as determinative in, in, in terms of fixing conclusively that it will occur, not talking about causation, talking about fixing conclusively that something will occur is just as determinative as God actively, as the Calvinists say, planning, purposing, and, and bringing it about. It's just as determinative in terms, as far as this particular point is concerned. So once again, when you hear Leighton say, Therefore, God has decreed for people to rob him of his glory in order to glorify himself. That is no different than saying, Therefore, God has chosen to allow something that will rob him of his glory in order to glorify himself. Right? No different. If that's not blatantly inconsistent, then what is? And the reason it's not inconsistent, from coming from your side, for God to allow something that doesn't glorify himself so that he can glorify himself, the same reasons are on my side, right? And I've already given them. Y you would share in those reasons. And the reason for that is, this is something that both Christians need to come to grips with, okay? It's cover to cover in the Bible. Whether it's reactive, allowance, permission, or it's active planning and purposing, God is determining that bad stuff happens, stuff that robs him of glory, so that he can glorify himself. So with that first point out of the way, we're going to move on to the next point. Um, what you're going to hear coming up here is a, a Leighton Flower is going to play a clip from Doug Wilson talking about something that he read out of a book by John Piper. And Doug Wilson is basically asking, what is keeping people from recognizing and accepting Jesus Christ? And, you know, Doug, spoiler alert, Doug, Doug Wilson goes on to talk about how the world is full of sinful hearts who hate God and love their sin, so on and so forth. And so, with that context in mind, let's hear Leighton's next point. And so, what you're first going to hear is a question from Doug Wilson, followed by uh, Leighton. What is it that keeps us from seeing and savoring the Christ of all saving grace? Let's answer that question before we listen to his answer, okay? What is it? Matter of fact, let's just back up just a little bit. I want you to hear the question for yourself. Listen. What is it that keeps us from seeing and savoring the Christ of all saving grace? What is it that keeps us, humanity, from seeing and savoring the Christ of his amazing grace. Now, I think the answer he gives is a correct answer here in this video, but is it consistent with what the Calvinist claims? Because on Calvinism, who is it, what is it, 
that is keeping people from seeing and savoring Christ? Well, let's let John Calvin answer that question before we hear from Douglas Wilson. Therefore, those whom God passes over, he condemns. To this, he does so for no other reason than he wills to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines for his own children, end quote, from John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. So what or who is keeping people from savoring and accepting the Christ? Well, it's God on Calvinism. Now, this is a very common objection that comes in all sorts of forms, right? And it's based on this, once again, false assumption that since Calvinists recognize God in the ultimate position as having planned and purposed all things, therefore, for some reason, we're just supposed to ignore all the storyline-level reasons behind why things happen. And I've just never understood this, right? I've, I've never understood this point. How... Uh, you know, especially in the context of this quote, Doug Wilson is asking what is keeping people from accepting Christ. He's asking a storyline level question, right? And and as he's going to go on to, you haven't heard the answer yet, but he's going to go on to talk about, once again, sinful hearts, on and on. Um, there are storyline level reasons behind why people reject Christ. They're all valid reasons, right? And then he quotes John Calvin, and in the context of John Calvin, John Calvin's talking about God in the ultimate position, planning and purposing and determining all things, Right? But Leighton refuses to accept a distinction between those two things and understanding the proper relationship between those two things. So it's not at all wrong to mention that God has determined all things, right? There's nothing wrong with that, with that at all. What is wrong, however, is to focus only on that and consider it the only reason that things are happening and just ignore all the story and the level of reasons behind why things are happening, which is what Leighton Flowers is going to do here over and over and over again, right? And it's this, once again, this this assumption coming out of the blue, coming out of nowhere, that basically is saying that, well, Calvinists don't even have a right to talk about the storyline level reasons, right? Since God's in control of all of it, that's the only thing that matters. That's the only answer that's necessary. But once again, it's just a very common error, and, and it's one we've pointed out in previous episodes, right? Especially with Leighton Flowers for some reason. It's this stubborn false assumption that, well, if God's determined something, how or why that something comes about on the storyline level is completely irrelevant, right? The only thing that matters is that God has determined it. And this false assumption is just, it's this assumption that God can't be in the transcendent position, that there can't be more than one answer as to why things are happening. The, the free will side is falsely assumed that it's either God or us, right? It's either God doing it or the other thing that's doing it. It can't be both. And as I've mentioned over and over and over in these episodes, you have to, you have to understand God of the transcendent position, right? It's actually the only sense, the only way to make sense out of um, large portions of the Bible, right? Even in the examples we've already given, why did the crucifixion occur? Well, it occurred because God predestined it to occur. That's what the Bible says. But the crucifixion also occurred. The murder of Christ also occurred because sinners murdered Christ, right? Both of those answers are true. And just because God determined all things doesn't mean you get to ignore the all things right it depends on which angle you want to look at things from there's a transcendent angle and there's a storyline level angle right so as as i've always said um stupid stupidly simple example is if i'm going to create two objects right ball a and ball b and i want to use ball a to cause ball b to move to a different location and you ask why did ball b move there's two answers Number one, I caused it to move as the transcendent creator and sustainer of those things, right? That's that's one answer, but it's not the only answer. It also moved because ball A smashed into it, right? Ball A caused it to move on the storyline level. And so th both of those answers are valid answers, and they both serve a particular purpose in a particular context. 
So when Doug Wilson's going to ask why people reject Christ, sure, if you want to jump straight up to the ultimate level, you can say because God determined that they would reject Christ. But you can also look at the storyline level and ask, in what ways has God determined that they will reject Christ? And that's where sin comes into the picture. Sinful hearts come into the picture, right? Hatred of God, love for self, hatred of the truth, right? Shutting their eyes to the truth. All of these biblical determinative reasons that the Bible gives why people reject Christ are clear storyline level answers. And Leighton just admitted he accepts those answers, but he doesn't want to accept the God did it answer, the ultimate God did it answer. But my whole argument here is that this point um, is exactly what is going on when you understand God properly in his relationship to his creation, right? Whenever you're going to ask why something happened, the God did it answer is always going to be a valid answer, but it's not the only answer. There are also storyline level reasons behind why things are happening the way that they're happening and you don't just get to ignore them right when you want to come make arguments against calvinism if you're going to make arguments against calvinism or in the case of latent flowers here try to demonstrate that calvinism is inconsistent with itself then you have to take all of what calvinism says right and just because you want to ignore storyline level reasons when critiquing calvinism doesn't mean that i as a calvinist need to be making your same false assumptions Right? You're, you're, you want to take part of my view, you want to take the God-determinant part and leave out the storyline level part because you think for some reason that the storyline level part is only applicable to, to your view. But once again, this is because you have falsely assumed that it can't be both. There can't be ultimate reasons and, and storyline level reasons. And to, to demonstrate this, if, as if the crucifixion and the, and the story of Pharaoh are not clear enough examples, why did the crucifixion happen? Ultimate reason, God determined it. Storyline level reason, people murdered Christ. Uh, why did Pharaoh harden his heart? Ultimate reason, God hardened it. Storyline level reason, God, uh, Pharaoh was a, a sinner who hated God and loved his power and didn't want to let the people go. You see how it's both? Just one in light of the other. It's not either or. It's one in light of the other. But we can go down the line and ask a bunch of different other questions. I always like to ask people, why does it rain? Can somebody please, on the free will side, can you please tell me why it rains? Because I thought it rained because the sun evaporated water in the air and it condensed and became heavy and fell back down. I thought that's why it rained. But the Bible's telling me that God brings the rain. So which is it? You're, you're, the, you're the ones insisting that it's either or. It's either God bringing the rain or, I guess, natural, quote-unquote, natural laws bringing the rain. Well, which is it? Well, could it possibly, just maybe, could it be both? Could it be that God, that, that God in the ultimate transcendent position, the one whose power holds all things together, and causes them to function the way that they function, can the Bible say that God brings the rain because he's in control of all those storyline-level reasons why it rains? Maybe, just maybe? And this just this goes for everything else, the snow and the wind and the sun rising and your heart beating. God gives you your, your breath and your heart beating. It's because God's in control of it all. You see, the biblical authors didn't make the same false assumptions that the free will side makes. They didn't assume that, well, it's either the, the something happening or God doing it, and it can't be both. They understood, since God is in control of all these things, it is both. It's just proper understanding God in the transcendent position and what you're looking at on the storyline level. And if you reject this categorical difference, right? If you reject the idea that God can be seen in the ultimate transcendent position as the creator and sustainer, right? As the ultimate reason why things are happening. And yet we can also look at the storyline level and ask questions and answer questions as to why things are happening. If you reject what I would consider those two realities, 
then you can't possibly make sense out of the points of Scripture that I've raised, even in just this episode, right? How can you possibly make sense out of the crucifixion? The Bible says God predestined it. So why did the crucifixion happen? God predestined it. That's the biblical answer, right? Ultimate biblical answer, God predestined it. But it, that's the same verse also said that what was predestined, you see, you, you have to ask, God didn't just snap his fingers and teleport Christ onto the cross, right? There's a way in which he brought about the crucifixion, and it was by the hands of wicked men, right? That's what the verse says. They did what God, God's hand and plan predestined to take place. So if you don't recognize God in the ultimate position and what is occurring on the storyline level, how could you possibly make sense out of that? How could you possibly make sense out of Pharaoh? Again, God didn't just snap his fingers and, and harden Pharaoh's heart. There was a way in which he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you don't recognize God in the transcendent position and what is occurring on the storyline level, right? How do you make sense out of uh, Romans 9 saying that this for this very purpose, God raised Pharaoh up? How do you make sense out of my simple question of why does it rain when the Bible says God brings the rain, but we know that there are storyline level reasons? If how do, you, how do you make sense out of any of that? And the answer is that you can't if you're going to insist that it's either God or the other thing, right? It's both. Right? If I were to author a story, plan it from start to finish, and have the power to bring that story to life, no matter what you pointed at in that story, if you asked why is it happening, there's two answers. Number one, I planned and purposed it. And number two, there's a storyline level reason. In fact, the storyline level reason um, is the outplay of what I planned and purposed. My, my plan and purpose includes all of the story, not just little bits and pieces of the story. All of the story is part of what I planned and purposed. So once again, for Leighton to... Take a question that Doug Wilson is asking um, in the context of a storyline level and conflate that with a quote from Calvin, which is clearly referencing God on the ultimate level, and then accuse us of being inconsistent um, is just laughable. That's, that's a forced inconsistency by you conflating the context of two separate things. And so after pointing all these things out, I want to ref refine this down a little further and just point out that it depends what questions you're asking and the way those questions are phrased as to which of, of these two um, categories it is applicable to. Because uh, most of the time, when you're just asking why something is occurring, well, you can point to the storyline level, and then you can point to the ultimate level, and you can say that's why it's happening. But in this case, the question is, what is keeping people right, um, from accepting Christ? It's not merely asking, you know, why are people uh, rejecting Christ? It's not merely asking um, what determined people to reject Christ. Those questions can once again be answered in both the storyline level and the transcendent level. But when it's phrased as what is keeping people from accepting Christ, um, I'd like to point out that this phrase, this, the, the way this question is phrased, is actually not really applicable to the transcendent category uh, when it comes to God. Uh, just listen to this one more time. What or who is keeping people from savoring and accepting the Christ? Well, it's God on Calvinism. And see, in my opinion, when you're going to ask what is keeping people from rejecting Christ, that question, in my opinion, is only applicable to the storyline level. Once you move it to God's level, the best you can be asking is, you know, did God determine it? Did God cause it? Did God bring it about that people would reject Christ? Uh, and the reason for this is, um, this this phrase, the way this is phrased, can spark a misconception in people's minds, and it's ba it's a misconception based upon not accepting all of what Calvinism is saying, right? 
this this phrase God is keeping them from doing that God is keeping them from accepting Christ sort of paints this picture of well this mean nasty Calvinist God is holding people back right he's getting in the way if you would just step aside and let people be then they would be accepting Christ you see what I'm saying that's what it that's the picture it paints in a lot of people's minds and I need to point out very quickly that the reason it paints that picture is because people aren't taking all of what Calvinism says into account, right? They're actually understanding a portion of Calvinism in light of their own assumption of free will in the back of their minds, whether they realize it or not. And this is one of the hardest things to break through on people with. And that is that you need to just, even if you're not going to accept Calvinism, when you're going to try to understand it, you have to abandon the idea of free will. You have to abandon the idea that you can be a self-sustained, self-powered, self-determined entity, right? Not just for the sake of trying to understand it. You have to abandon that. Because once you abandon that and understand what Calvinism is saying as a foundation, that nothing, it's not as though if God wasn't exerting power over you and controlling you, that you'd be doing something else. If God wasn't exerting power and control over you, you would cease to exist. The only reason you exist and continue to exist is because God is exerting power and control over you. That's our position. So when you say something like this, God is keeping them from doing that. You're not understanding the claims of Calvinism in its entirety. Okay? And if you're going to demonstrate Calvinism to be inconsistent, you need to be doing that from the inside out. Right? From within Calvinism, not from the outside in. You can't smuggle in your own hidden assumptions of free will and then try to use those to make it seem inconsistent. Now, the reason it works with a lot of people is because the people that you're preaching to are are making the same false assumptions as you. But back to the point. Let's all go on an adventure, okay? Even if Calvinism isn't true, let's just examine it, right? Is it really inconsistent? Because, let's face it, uh, a false position, even though it's false, can still be consistent with itself, it might not be consistent with the with facts. It might not be consistent with truth, but it can be logically consistent, right? Um, obviously, something that is inconsistent can't possibly be true. It that must be false. But something can be false and still be logically consistent. So let's go on an adventure and pretend that okay, Calvinism is false, but let's try to understand it. If what I just said is true, that nothing can be occurring unless God brings it to pass by His power in the first place. And it's not as though if God wasn't exerting power, things would be happening differently. If God wasn't exerting power, nothing would be happening at all, right? If that's true, then this idea of God keeping people from accepting Christ doesn't make any sense. So if I'm going to author a story, for example, from start to finish, and I plan the characters out, and I plan that one of my characters is going to be the bad guy, and he's going to do a lot of bad stuff, does it make any logical sense to say that I, as the author, am holding my character back from being good? Does it make any logical sense to say that I, as the author, am keeping my character from being good or keeping my character from doing good by determining that he will be bad and do bad? That, that doesn't even make sense, right? The only reason my character exists is because I want him to exist. I planned him out. And so anything my character is or does was determined by me, right? That's why he exists or will exist um, if I could bring my story to life. Um, and it doesn't make any sense to say that I am keeping my character from being something other than what I planned or determined him to be. So understanding me as the transcendent author, that statement that I am keeping my character from being good doesn't make any sense. Be- because it's Im- it's implying that something other than what I determined to happen could be happening. 
And if Calvinism is true, it can't, right? Again, if Calvinism is true. But does that mean that we can't look at the storyline level of my story and ask that particular question, what is keeping my character from being good? Because there might actually be storyline level reasons. Again, not in the ultimate sense. The only things that are going to come to pass in my story are the things I plan to come to pass. But we can talk about hypotheticals. We can say that my character, that his pride is keeping him from being good, or his hatred for a particular other character in my story is keeping him from being good or doing good. We can ask that question and answer it on the storyline level. And that's what I'm getting at here with Doug Wilson's question. Doug Wilson is asking, what is keeping people from accepting Christ? It's obviously a storyline level question with storyline level answers, right? And that question makes no sense when you try to bring it up to the ultimate level, right? The best you can say, once again, is that God determined that they would reject Christ or that God determined that they would be kept from accepting Christ by storyline level reasons, their own sinfulness, their own sinful hearts. That's all true. I have no problem with that. But to say or try to conclude that God, therefore, God is the one keeping them makes no sense. The only way in which that statement would make sense is if God was interacting with, which he does, but interacting with that storyline level, and he himself was directly on the storyline level keeping somebody from accepting Christ. But of course he doesn't do this. And you can just think back to the billiard ball example. Once again, I create two, two objects, ball A and ball B. I cause ball B to move to a different location by means of ball A. Ball A smashes into ball B on the storyline level. Um, but depending on how you're going to phrase the question, if you're just going to ask why did ball B move, there's two answers. Ball B moved because I caused it to move by means of ball A, and ball B moved because ball A smashed into it, right? Storyline level answer, transcendent answer. But if you're going to word the question as what hit ball B, that's that's a storyline level question, right? That's That can only be answered by the storyline level. What actually hit ball B? Just because I caused ball A to smash into ball B doesn't mean that I'm the one hitting ball B, right? In order for me to hit ball B, I would have to take part in my creation and actually interact with it directly on the storyline level to be said to be hitting ball B. And the same thing goes for this idea of what is keeping people from accepting Christ. It's a storyline level question, right? Calvinists are not saying, as Leighton tries to imply, by saying that God is the one keeping them. God is not on the storyline level, directly interacting with people and keeping them from accepting Christ. But that's different than saying, has God determined that they will be kept from accepting Christ by storyline level means, right? Those are two separate questions. And this brings me into another very, very brief point, and that is that God does interact on the storyline level. When God saves a person and regenerates them, that is by a direct work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts, right? That is not the same thing as saying, so, so when God works that somebody believe, for example, or works regeneration, that, that is true of both the transcendent position and the storyline level, right? God is obviously sustaining it all and bringing it about on the ultimate level, but he's also actually doing something in time on the storyline level directly. But that is not the same thing that is occurring with, for example, when people sin or when he hardens a heart. God isn't using the Holy Spirit to harden hearts, right? He's hardening hearts through all sorts of other means that are on the storyline level, but God is not on the storyline level the one directly doing it. And talked about this briefly on one of my other episodes, uh, this whole idea of the difference between God doing something directly on the storyline level um, once again, God predestined the crucifixion, right? He predestined all the terrible things that people did. But 
does that mean that when someone tortured Jesus, that God was torturing Jesus? No, right? Doesn't follow. The only way the only way God would be torturing Jesus is if he directly on the storyline level tortured Jesus, but he didn't. Uh, he ultimately caused it. He ultimately brought it about. Sure, but that's in the transcendent position once again. Um, I asked earlier, why does it rain? Right? Obviously, God in the ultimate transcendent position can be said to be bringing the rain because he's in control of all the storyline level reasons behind why it's raining. But God is not on the storyline level like pouring buckets of water over your head, right? <laughs> there's a, there's clearly a difference here, once again, when we understand what God is quote-unquote doing in the transcendent position versus what he's quote-unquote doing in time. And it's upon that basis that I mentioned uh, in, the, in the past episode, I think it was on uh, Did You Believe Because You Were Better, one of Leighton Flowers' points there was, well, if you're going to try to credit God with all the good stuff, then logically you must also credit God with all the bad stuff. And I pointed out I have no problem quote-unquote crediting God with everything, including the bad stuff, on the transcendent position, right? The transcendent level, the ultimate level. No problem at all crediting, quote-unquote crediting God with the bad stuff and the good stuff on the ultimate level. But when you zoom into that storyline level, right, the reason God is credited with the good stuff is because the Bible teaches very clearly that the only the only quote-unquote good that is done is worked by God in the believer by the Holy Spirit. It's wor- he, God is actually working in the storyline level. He's working on the hearts of believers. He is working. Um, he is at work in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, right? But that statement <clears throat> is not true of the ultimate position. That statement is not applicable to when people sin. God is not working sin in the hearts of people by the Holy Spirit, right? In the same way he works good in the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit. There's a difference there. So on the storyline level, if that's all you're looking at, man is credited with bad because man is the one sinning and God is credited with good because the only good that is done is by faith, right? And and by the Holy Spirit. And so a verse that comes to mind that is uh, quite often brought up against Calvinists that is once again based upon this false assumption that if God can be said to be doing all things on the transcendent position, therefore he can be said to be doing all things on the storyline level as well. James 1.13, we're all familiar with it. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, I've argued with people on this, this verse before. I have said as a Calvinist that this verse is not teaching. It's not making a metaphysical claim. It's not saying that God does not cause people to be tempted on the storyline level. That's not the point of this verse, Right? People think that this verse is refuting that claim of Calvinism because they're just falsely assuming that, well, if God has determined that something occur, then he's the one who's actually doing it, right? If God determines that someone sinned, then God's the sinner, right? And in this case, if God determined that someone be tempted, then he's the one that's doing the tempting. And I hope you can see, as I'm going down with example after example of this, the only way that God could, would be said to be actually the one doing the tempting is if he entered on the storyline level and did the tempting, right? But that's not the point of this verse, right? But that's that's how a Calvinist would answer this particular verse. The point the point of the verse is not that God does not act, that does not ever cause people to be tempted, right? The once again, God upholds the universe by His power, right? Temptation can't even occur unless God is bringing it about by His power. That's not the same thing as saying that God is the one doing the tempting. Just like God wasn't the one that murdered Jesus or spat on Jesus or tortured Jesus. So you guys have to recognize, the Bible forces you to recognize the clear difference between God and the transcendent position and the cause and effect relationship that he has over each and every moment of time. And 
a particular cause and effect relationship that God has by participating in time on the storyline level. Okay? And so back to this idea of God not tempting people, and yet Calvinists would say that God does cause people to be tempted. Why do you pray for God to not lead you into temptation? Just stop and think about that. Why do you pray for God to not lead you into temptation if you don't believe that's something that God ever does? Right? Wouldn't that be blasphemous if you were praying for God to not do something that you don't believe he ever does? But of course, you do believe that um, God most certainly does lead us into temptation at certain times, right? He puts us through trials, and he sanctifies us and grows us in the process. This is, this is obvious. The Bible itself even comes right out and says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, right? Does that mean that God is the one doing the tempting? Of course not, right? God can cause people to be tempted by certain things or certain other people. That doesn't make God the tempter. So this use of James um, saying that God himself tempts no one to try to disprove Calvinism's claim of God's absolute control of all things, including, for example, people being tempted, is a massive faceplant, theologically speaking. So my only point at the end of the day, guys, is if you're going to take Calvinism as a whole and realize that it's not as though there could be other things happening, um, the only things that come to pass are the things that God brings to pass in the transcendent position, that that is different than understanding the ways God interacts and the things God does on the storyline level when he takes part in what he's created, right? Again, if you're going to just insist on rejecting the distinction between those two things and just keep saying things like, God is keeping them from doing that. I can't stop you from doing that. But I just want you to know that you're inciting false understandings in people's minds, right? And and once again, um, that's just a decision you're going to have to make. Now, I want to bring up one last example it, uh, for those of those of you who would insist on you know ignoring everything I've said. Um, let's go back to Pharaoh really quickly once again, and I just like to ask the question: Was God keeping Pharaoh from letting the people go? Was God keeping Pharaoh from letting the people go? Yes or no? Because it's my contention that if free will is true, then God was keeping Pharaoh from letting the people go. And again, don't fall for the distractions. doesn't matter how or when or why or what day of the week it was. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. So here's Leighton expressing distaste over the idea that Calvinism would have God, quote-unquote, keeping people from accepting him. And yet, if free will is true, God kept Pharaoh from letting the people go. God kept Pharaoh from obeying the very command that he gave him. Because the implication seems to be, if God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, he would have let the people go. Again, if free will is true, you're the one who thinks that things can be happening differently. You're the one who thinks that Pharaoh was an autonomous entity. If that's all true, and God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, would Pharaoh have let the people go? Right? The fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't implies, yeah, he would have. Right? So when I ask the question, if God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, would Pharaoh have let the people go? If you say, yes, he would have, then you admit God kept Pharaoh from obeying his command. If you say, no, he still would have not let the people go, then you render God's heart hardening completely meaningless and purposeless and useless because God could have just stood back and it would have unfolded in precisely the same way, right? If you say no, he still would have let the people go. So you need to make up your mind. The problem is that when you try to force free will into the understanding of the case of Pharaoh, no matter which direction you go, you lose, right? But if you're going to flip this back on Calvinism 
and understand the case of Pharaoh in light of everything I've tried my best, probably not even close to perfectly, but tried my best to lay out, then God wasn't hardening Pharaoh's heart uh, because if he didn't, he would have let the people go. God wasn't keeping Pharaoh from letting the people go. It's just a transcendent description of the exact same event. Again, it's not either or. It wasn't either God hardening his heart or Pharaoh hardening his heart. It's Pharaoh hardened his heart over and over and over and over because God hardened his heart over and over and over and over. God was in control of all the storyline level reasons behind why Pharaoh was hardening his heart from the start to the finish. And because of that, it can be said that God was, quote-unquote, doing the hardening. So you notice something. If you introduce free will into the case of Pharaoh, you either have God keeping Pharaoh from obeying his own command, which Leighton here calls inconsistent, so your own position is inconsistent, or you render uh, God's heart hardening completely meaningless by saying that even if God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, he would have still not let the people go. Neither of those works. When you, when you just zoom out and try to examine it, neither of those makes any sense. But what does make sense is to understand that God was in control of everything from the start to the finish. If you grant that distinction again between God and the transcendent position, what is occurring on the storyline level, and understand that the very first time Pharaoh hardened his heart, it was God doing it. And the second time and the third time and the fourth time, all the way through. It was Pharaoh all the way through because God all the way through. It's both one in light of the other. It's not either or. So the case of Pharaoh, the reason I stress it so much, is it is just an absolute destruction of all of the free will position. All of their assumptions. The case of Pharaoh is the biggest exception to all of their false, their made-up rules, right? They're made-up rules that says God doesn't determine sin. They're made-up rule that says God can't determine what you do and hold you responsible. They're made-up rule that says if God is determining what you do, He's, quote-unquote, keeping you from doing what you, I guess, otherwise would have done. Those are all completely destroyed by the case of Pharaoh. And again, ranting on about judicial hardening doesn't change a single thing I've pointed out in this episode about Pharaoh. It doesn't change one single thing. It is just a distraction away from the point. If free will is true, God kept Pharaoh from obeying his command. The very inconsistent thing that he is accusing Calvinists here of being inconsistent on, God kept Pharaoh from obeying his own command. But if free will is not true, if Calvinism is true, then all you have is a description from two different angles, a description of what occurred. The entire event from start to finish, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's the storyline level. If you were alive at that time and you were to look over at Pharaoh and what he was doing, you would say, wow, look at that, look at that prideful guy hardening his heart against God over and over and over. That's the storyline level view. That's what occurred. That's what you would have seen happening. But the Bible gives us the behind the scenes information on why it was happening. God is in control of all things. And therefore, it can be said that God was hardening Pharaoh's heart. God was hardening Pharaoh's heart. God was hardening Pharaoh's heart. God said he would do it. Right? And if you want proof of this concept that I'm laying forth, that it's not either or, that it's both, all you have to do is go to the end of chapter 9 of Exodus the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. Those two verses, again, the chapter divisions weren't a part of the, part of the original text. Obviously, it would have been just one nice flowing um, text, and this is what you'll read. This is, this, is the, this is the biggest, in my opinion, the biggest game changer in the, in the whole debate over Pharaoh. And, well, who hardened whose heart when? It's both, one in light of the other. It's a down-to-earth storyline level view and a transcendent behind-the-scenes view 
of the same occurrence of a heart hardening, right? Exodus 9.34, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Right? Verse 35, So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He didn't let the people of Israel go. Just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. What did the Lord say through Moses? I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. I will do it. And then chapter 10, verse 1. This is, again, the very next sentence. There's no break here. The very next verse says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them. So verse 34, Pharaoh hardened his heart, he and his servants. Chapter 10, verse 1, two verses later, the Lord said, Go to Pharaoh, I have hardened his heart, he and his servants. Well, which was it? Was Pharaoh and his servants hardening their own hearts, or was God hardening their hearts? It's not an either-or, it's both. And this is an absolute refutation of the free will's position or claim that it's not that it's either-or, and that, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, and then God comes along later, and blah, blah, blah. That is not what the account teaches, right? God told Moses before he ever went to Pharaoh, I'm going to harden his heart. This is what I'm going to do. When Moses went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardened his heart in response to Moses, what do you think Moses was thinking? Was Moses thinking, wow, I know God said he was going to harden his heart, but Pharaoh just did it himself. So maybe I should let God know that he can just save his heart hardening powers for another day. Obviously, that's not what he was thinking. When Pharaoh hardened his heart, Moses knew right then and there that was the outplay of what God said he would do. And you follow that all the way through the account, and you have it right here. The same instance, Exodus 9.34, Pharaoh hardened his heart, he and his servants. Exodus 10.1, God said, I have hardened his heart, he and his servants. Okay? And all I'm saying is that this only makes sense if you grant what I have been granting the Calvinist view of God in the transcendent position and the storyline level occurrences of things. This, this is the only way it makes sense. Free will cannot make sense out of, out of what we've been going through. It can't make sense out of the crucifixion in Acts 4. It can't make sense out of God bringing the rain. It can't make sense out of the case of Pharaoh. So let's get back into what Leighton's saying here. What is it that keeps us from seeing and savoring the Christ of all saving grace? And as a direct consequence of this blindness, what is it that is stirring up record levels of racial enmity in our day? Yeah, so where does that blindness come from? Hmm. Where does spiritual blindness come from? Now, after everything I've laid out, right? Why are people spiritually blind? Transcendent answer, God determined that they would be. Yes, Calvinists believe that. But you have to ask how. How did God determine that they would be? What does that look like in time? Does that blindness come because we close our eyes to the truth and we suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Absolutely. That's the storyline level outplay of what spiritual blindness is. What does it mean to be spiritually blind? It means to close your eyes to the truth, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, turn away from the things of God, right? That's what it means to be spiritually blind. Or is that a blindness innately according to the decree of God that we are born under because of the inherited uh, curse of the fall from Adam and Eve? Too much to cover there. You know, what's the result of the fall? Still gonna, still waiting to make an episode on that. But I would just point out, when it comes to spiritual blindness, you need a reference point, right? To say, well, just people are people are born spiritually blind. Well, what does that mean? Um, blind to what? If if you say the gospel, well, people aren't people hear the gospel in time, right? They're not just born blind to the gospel. You can't be born 
blind, spiritually blind to something you haven't come across yet, right? But the point of, that Calvinists would say is that, yes, we are born fallen sinners, and our natural response to the gospel will be to shut our eyes to it. Our natural response to the truth of God will be to turn away from it, because we hate it, and we love ourselves, right? We hate God, we love ourselves, we hate the things of God, we love the things of the world by nature, and so that's the natural response of uh, a fallen sinner, right? So again, the, the common theme here is, depending on which angle you're looking at it from, there's, there's more than one answer to the question. People blind themselves to Christ by closing their eyes to Christ. They're spiritualized, right? Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, that's a valid answer. But according to Leighton, the, the only answer is because God, right? Since God created them fallen sinners, we get to somehow ignore the part about fallen, sin, fallen sinners closing their eyes to the truth in time as they come across it, right? Leighton refuses to allow for both answers. Because Augustinian theology, i.e. Calvinism, teaches that we inherited not only the guilt, but the fallen condition of Adam and Eve, and therefore we're born in a condition where we are blind spiritually, completely blind, unless God unilaterally picked us and gives us, quote-unquote, new eyes to see. Right, and spiritual blindness is in the moral category. Um, I wouldn't say that we're born, we're, we're born spiritually blind as a general statement, but what that means is that we will shut our eyes to the truths of God as we come across them in time. That is our natural response and reaction to the things of God. We harden our hearts and we shut our eyes to the truths of God. Okay? So it's important to point out that spiritual blindness is in the moral category. Okay? Joseph's brothers, I always give this, this example, Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him because they hated him. Right? It's, it's a, why couldn't they speak peaceably to him? It's not because they couldn't speak, period. It's because they hated him. And so spiritual blindness is along the same lines. It's, it's not that they can't see, people can't see the things of God even if they wanted to. It's not because they can't see spiritual things, quote-unquote, period, right? It's not like physical blindness. Physically blind people can't see even if they wanted to um, because of a, a defective uh, part of them, right? Something about them is defective. They're prevented from seeing what they want to see because they just can't see, period. But spiritually blind people could see the truth of God if they wanted to. Spiritually blind people are not seeing, quote-unquote seeing, the truth of God because they don't want to see it. They hate it, right? They're only seeing the, the, the spiritually bad stuff. They're only seeing false falsehoods, right, and things of the world. And so he asked the question again, where does this blindness come from? On Calvinism, it comes from God. God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed that Adam and Eve's sin would cause all of his posterity from that point forward to become spiritually unable to see. Now, that, that wasn't half bad. Leighton just listed out what the outplay of God's determination looks like in time. Right, he, just, he, he laid it out pretty good there. On Calvinism, it comes from God. God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed that Adam and Eve's sin would cause all of his posterity from that point forward to become spiritually unable to see. But he leads it off by saying it comes from God. If, if you mean that God determined that that's how it would play out, sure, I guess you could say it came from God. Just as Paul said that the disobedience of Israel came, quote-unquote, from God, right? There's a difference between saying something comes from God in the ultimate sense and saying that something comes from God on the storyline level. Ultimately, it was all God's plan and purpose in the way he wanted to do things, right? He... Again, Calvinism teaches God wanted to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. He can only do that if sinners exist in the first place. And God chose to use, according to our view, a view Leighton would disagree with, but God chose to use a system of federal headship to bring that about. Okay, we fell in Adam. In Adam all died, Romans 5 says. God, God didn't, 
he didn't have to do it that way. He didn't have to do it the federal headship way. God could have very easily created each and every person as their own clean slate, right? Their own new Adam, so to speak, if he wanted to. But he didn't choose to do it that way. And whether or not we like it, it's a fact of reality, right? That reality includes being born dead in sin with a sinful heart, which loves sin and hates God, right? That reality includes the very details that Leighton wants to ignore most of the time that he's criticizing Calvinism, right? So let's listen to this again. And so he asked the question again, where does this blindness come from? Where did the blindness come from? Two answers to that question, right? God determined that it would be there. That's question number, that's answer number one. And it comes from us being fallen sinners. On Calvinism, it comes from God. God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed that Adam and Eve's sin would cause all of his posterity from that point forward to become spiritually unable to see. That's absolutely correct, right? That blindness on the storyline level comes from them loving their sin, loving lies rather than loving the truth, right? The blindness comes from them closing their eyes to the truth. And thus all the racial tensions that you're talking about, all these problems that you're bemoaning, they are from none other than the hand of God, according to John Piper's own website. That Ultimately. Nothing comes except from the hand of God. And I've pointed that out repeatedly. I don't know how you can accept what Hebrews 1.3 says about God upholding the universe by his power and not understand that ultimately nothing occurs except by the hand of God. Um, I don't know how you could, you know, I stand by that. No matter how emotional you want to make it, right? Even molestations of children, See? in that exact quote that we've done, played here a thousand times. No matter how emotional you want to make it, right? And, and if you think that bringing up something emotional, like the abuse of a child, is what it takes to keep people from accepting the truths of Calvinism, just remember, you're embarrassing yourself because you have not thought these ultimate questions through from your own viewpoint. Once again, the Bible says that God upholds the existence of all things at all times. So even you believe that God upheld the child abuser who is abusing the child every single moment that that abuse was occurring. So how do you answer that? You think this is something that Calvinists are the ones who actually just man up and tell it like it is, right? We don't pretend that we have to like it all the time, but we tell truth when truth is there, right? We don't let our emotions scare us away from accepting truth. But how do you answer that, right? You, you also believe that God upheld the existence of that poor child who was being abused. Every moment that child was being abused. How do you answer that, right? That horrific event, that, that emotional thing you want to point out, right, could only come to pass by the very sustaining power or I suppose you could word you could say hand, right? If you might call it that, the very sustaining power of God. All Christians need to address that. And it just it irritates me to hear the other side constantly attack Calvinism as if we're the only ones who have these issues to deal with, right? I said in past episodes, I think that's because we're the only ones manning up and addressing the reality that all Christians face. We take very simple realities that all Christians face and we address them head on. We try to make sense of them and understand them on a scriptural and logical basis. So people come away thinking that we're the only ones that have these sorts of problems in our view. But it's not only the Calvinists that have the, this reality, right? We take reality. God created the people who would abuse children. God also created the children that would be abused. He knew it all beforehand. God could have stopped that child abuse, and he didn't stop it. God not only didn't stop it, but he actually made it possible, the only way it could have come to pass. by up, he, he upheld, by his power, the very things that were occurring, right? The very abuses that were occurring. So we take that reality, 
that's not Calvinism. That's just a fact of, 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 of any Christian worldview. We take that reality that all Christians are stuck with, and we try to make sense out of it, right? Both logically and scripturally. We do what the other side is either too theologically lazy to do, or knows that if they try to do it, will fail miserably and be shown to have an illogical and unbiblical worldview. So they just pretend that their side doesn't have to address it. The other side, once again, has convinced themselves of a delusion. A, this delusion that you can just somehow magically disconnect God from a particular thing, these, all these terrible things, just magically disconnect God, right? Remove all trace of God's action to create, action to sustain, pretend none of that's occurring, and just somehow call it a day. And I'm here to say, not so fast, right? I've heard Calvinists let these guys get away with it for a very long time. And I, it just gets old. And that's why I'm here to hold their feet to the fire. So when, when Calvinists ask these kinds of questions, and then they neglect to give you the answer from their worldview in a very clear and concise way, Calvinism can sound more palatable. And I don't know how much more clear I can be, right? There's two answers to any particular question you're going to ask about why something is happening. There is the ultimate God did an answer, and there is a storyline level answer. Uh, I'm not neglecting anything, right? And I just think it's a little dishonest on Leighton's part to just expect Calvinists to always um, put the little footnote down every time we're going to talk about something happening in, in time and say, oh, but by the way, don't forget, God brought that about. God caused that. God planned that. God purposed it. Obviously, you know we're Calvinists and we believe that, right? So we don't have to say that every single time we're going to talk about a contextual thing like something occurring on the storyline level, right? We're not neglecting uh, to, to, to say these things. We're not being dishonest or hiding things from people. You're just making the false assumption that we don't have the right to talk about the storyline level in the first place. You're making the false assumption that the God did it answer is the only answer, which makes Leighton's next statement amazing. It can sound more pro uh, probable, but when you simply unpack the claims of their systematic and you answer the question consistently within the claims of that systematic, then the answers they give like this make no sense. And that's incredible, right? Because Leighton did not answer the question consistently within the claims of Calvinism. He did not allow the Calvinists to take our entire view as a whole into account, as I laid out with God in the transcendent position and what is occurring on the storyline level, right? Leighton is ignoring those storyline level reasons. So this is the whole point, right? All the way down the line, um, if, if Leighton is going to allow me to have the two answers I've given, if I can have those answers, then my view is not inconsistent at all. There's no problem whatsoever. And you know it. That's why you have to try to force me into having only one answer. The God did it answer, right? That's the only answer that you're willing to allow me to have. And then upon that basis, accuse my view of being inconsistent, right? But if you allow the two answers I've put forth, which are so clearly there as I've demonstrated, with biblical examples, the ultimate God did an answer, and the storyline level reasons as that as as things unfold, there is no inconsistency, right? And if you were to take the same approach to your own position and allow for only one answer, in your case, the storyline level answer being the only answer, then I can make your view seem like an inc inconsistent joke as well, if I only let you have that answer, right? Because again, I ask, God let it happen, right? Isn't that a reason? something occurs? God created the people involved, right? Isn't that a reason that something occurs? God upheld the existence of people who did what they did, right? Isn't that a reason that something occurred? If you say no, you're just denying reality. But if you say yes, you refute your entire claim of inconsistency in Calvinism, because if you're allowed 
both the ultimate answer and the storyline level answer, then so are we. The answer to this most relevant question is sin. Sin is sin. Okay. So the answer to this question is sin. That's correct. The answer to the storyline level question that Doug asked is a storyline level answer. Sin. Sin occurs in time on the storyline level. Okay. God ordains, decrees. And now Leighton's talking again, right, about the the transcendent creator-sustainer position. He's mixing the two together. Causally determines all things that come to pass, including the very sin that you're bemoaning. Correct. If Calvinism is true. Now, on our view, sin comes from not God, but from the world. And you see how he separates the two? And, and makes it so that it, it can't possibly be both, right? If you, if you were doubting my repeated claim here that Leighton only allows for one answer, you just have it proved, you just had it proven to you, right? Calvinists teach that God determines all things, including the sin that comes to pass. There's the ultimate sense. But then when he brings up the storyline level sense, he tries to say, but that's his view. See, his view is the storyline, and Calvinists can't have that view, because in our view, sin comes from the world, as if... As if I can't, as a Calvinist, say that exact thing. That sin most certainly does come from the world. So I want you to hear this again, right? Hear this again and see how Leighton is pinning the ultimate answer to the Calvinists, saying that that's the only answer they can have, and then claiming the storyline level for himself, and only himself, as if the Calvinists have no right to say it. God ordains, decrees, causally determines all things that come to pass, including the very sin that you're bemoaning, if Calvinism is true. Now, on our view, sin comes from not God, but from the world. So sin sin comes from the world. I would agree with that. On the storyline level, man is the one sinning. Sin comes from the world, right? Doesn't come from God on the storyline level, right? And we've answered in past episodes, what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the breaking of the law of God. Sin is not something that has ontological existence like matter or energy. Sin is a description of the sin, of the actions of human beings, or in some, case, some cases, angels. It's disobedience to the law of God. Sin can only occur in time on the storyline level by definition, so yes, sin comes from the world. Valid answer, right? But again, Leighton thinks that that's the only answer that can be given. But even in the, you know, and, and he thinks that pointing out, once again, that God determined all is somehow inconsistent. Again, even in your view, did God create the world in which sin would exist? Oh, he did? Well, how does that not make your view inconsistent? I guess there's two answers then, isn't there? Sin comes from the world, yes, but it comes from the world that God created. It comes from the world that God sustain, sustains and upholds at all moments. That world is where it comes from, right? So why doesn't that make God a sinner? And the only way to answer that question is to grant the distinction that I have made between God in the transcendent position and man on the storyline level, right? This is what's amazing is sin, they can just say that sin comes from the world and then, again, convince themselves of the delusion that they can just toss God off to the side, completely out of the picture, and call it a day, right? And I'm demonstrated over and over and over again why you cannot do this. Uh, as First John 2.16 says, pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world. Completely agree, and that does not at all uh, disprove Calvinism, okay? Once again, God, pride and lust don't come from the Father. God never commanded that of people, right? God never, by the Holy Spirit, directly worked that in people on the storyline level, right? But that doesn't mean that God never caused people to be prideful, Pharaoh? Anybody? Pharaoh ring a bell? Hello? Hello, 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 hello. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You think there was a little bit of pride involved there? Right? So God God can cause these things to occur in time. He can cause somebody to be prideful, and yet it's the person being prideful, right? 
God can cause somebody to sin, and yet it's the person that's sinning, because there's two answers. The Calvinistic system says all things ultimately come from the sovereign hand of the decree of God. Oh, listen to that again. The Calvinistic system says all things ultimately come from the sovereign hand of the decree of God. So we finally have an accurate statement, a full-blown, wonderful statement from, from Leighton here. Ultimate. All things ultimately come from the sovereign hand of the decree of God. Okay, that's great. No problem there. But if there's ultimate, right, if there's an ultimate reason, there's also, by definition, immediate reason, right? If there's an ultimate, there's immediate. Uh, something can't be ultimate without other things being involved, right? By definition. In, in eternity past. Now, what Calvinists will often do when we have problems with this is they will punt to the U2 mystery and they will punt to omniscience. And they'll say, well, you too, because you believe God knows all things and he created it knowing it. Therefore, that's the exact same thing. That's a philosophical error. <laughs> okay. Now, it again, I warned you guys about this from the start. It's not a U2 fallacy when I've taken the, def the time to first defend my own position before turning it back on you, right? That's not the U2 fallacy. So just make that clear, right? You've got your own problems I've pointed out that you need to address. Those problems are real. They exist. You need to give answers, right? And and I've already given my answers. So the ball's in your court. Um, as we've gone over dozens of times before, knowing something is not causal. Just because God knows something that a free creature will do doesn't mean he's caused it. And you'll have to check out episode one and two for a full answer on that blatant falsehood, right? Because with God... It absolutely is. I want you to hear this again. As we've gone over dozens of times before, knowing something is not causal. Just because God knows something that a free creature will do doesn't mean he's caused it. Okay. We are talking about God, right? Uh, to make a long story short, once again, the other side is under the delusion that there can be things occurring that God has absolutely nothing to do with. If that were the case, if, that's a big if, if that were the case, if it were possible for there to be things existing or occurring that God has nothing to do with, then and only then would it be would it be possible for God to foreknow things that he does not cause. But Leighton here, conveniently, once again, forgot the part where God is the creator of all things. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And therefore, God's foreknowledge is based upon his own actions. God is not foreknowing things out of the blue. God is not foreknowing things about things he has nothing to do with. God is foreknowing the results of his own action to create and sustain. And since the Bible teaches that God upholds all of existence at all moments, then the only things that can come to pass in the first place are things that God brings to pass by his own sustaining power. And therefore, the only things that God can foreknow as coming to pass in the future are things that he has something to do with. They're things that he is going to bring about in the future. God cannot logically foreknow things that he has nothing to do with because those things do not and cannot exist in the first place. And so it is not a philosophical error, as he calls it. Um, as we've gone over dozens of times before, knowing something is not causal. Just because God knows something that a free creature will do doesn't mean he's caused it. That's only true if there can be things occurring that God has nothing to do with. That is what you need to demonstrate. You need to justify, right? You're just assuming it. This is something that's always assumed by the other side. It's never proven. It's always assumed. It's assumed that there can be things occurring or things existing that God has nothing to do with. And you need, I'm, I'm telling you to rewind and back up to the assumption and justify the assumption. Show me the verse of the Bible that teaches that there can be something that is occurring apart from the sustaining power of God. Show me the verse that teaches that you can in any way be free from God. I have the verses that say you're never free from God, that God upholds you at all times. 
that in God you live and move and have your being, that from God and through God and to God are all things, uh, that in God all things consist. I've got the verses that completely refute your false foundational assumption that things can be occurring that God has nothing to do with. So if you can't justify that, then your claim that God foreknowing something doesn't mean he caused it can't be true, right? Because the only things that God can foreknow are the things that he does cause, right? Long story short, check out episode two for more on that. And let me push back on this. And let me ask you a question with regard to his omnipotence, because you like to talk about his omniscience, his knowing of future free choices. But let's talk about his omnipotence, for example. Sounds good. Just ask this question. Even if it's beyond your full comprehension, is it possible? Is it just possible? If God wanted to create a creature that he himself does not determine, an all-knowing God wants to create a creature that he does not determine, in other words, he doesn't cause his choices to be what they are. Could God do it? Is it possible for God to do that? Absolutely not. Is it, in other words, is it possible for God to create a libertarianly free creature, a, a creature that he himself doesn't determine the decisions of that creature? Is it even possible? A Calvinist would have to say, logically, no, it's not possible. And that's exactly right. It is not possible. I am here, right here and right now, to boldly claim and proclaim that it is logically impossible for God to create a free will creature. I did a five-hour episode on that very topic. The title of the episode is Free Will is Logically Impossible for Us. That's the title of the episode. Go check it out, right? Five hours on why it is logically impossible for God to do it. Now, the whole point here is that when we're talking about things God can't do, right, it's just as impossible for God to create you with free will as it is for him to create another God like himself. We, we would all agree it's impossible for God to create another God like himself, right? Why? It's not because God's not powerful enough to do it. It's logically impossible for God to do it, right? It's because God is God, he can't do it. And it is just as impossible for God to create you with free will as it is for him to do logically other logically impossible things. It's logically impossible for God to create something that is self-sustained because self-sustainment and self-sufficiency is a property of eternality. It's a property of God and God alone. It is impossible for God to create a self-caused or self-determined entity because that is only possible of an eternal being who has no beginning, who has nothing outside of itself to move it or to cause it to do what it does, right? So self-determinism is only possible of God. Covered that in episode one. And the three verses that I always quote absolutely refute the idea that you can ever be free from God in the first place. God upholds your existence at all moments, um, so on and so forth. So check out episode one for more on that. Um, but don't fall for this accusation of, well, you Calvinists are questioning God's power. You, question, you Calvinists are questioning God's omnipotence. You, you Calvinists are limiting God and saying he can't do something. What we're saying is that God can't do illogical things, right? And the reason he can't do those things is not because he's not powerful enough. The reason he can't do those things is because he's God to begin with. God can't sin. God can't make a square circle. God can't create another God like himself. God can't cause himself to cease to exist. There's a very long list of things that God can't do. And they are all positive limitations of God, not negative limitations, right? Now, Leighton goes on to give a, a, a different answer than the answer I gave as to why Calvinists say God can't do it. But it's an interesting one. A Calvinist would have to say, logically, no, it's not possible. Because God in his omniscience would know what the free creature would do. And therefore, by creating that creature in his freedom, knowing what he would do, he's ultimately determining that creature to do what he does. So ultimately, the Calvinist, based upon a finite philosophical mindset, says, <laughs> well, no, because creating a creature knowing what they would choose to do is the same as determining that creature to do what they do. Absolutely correct. That's, that's exactly right. And you don't just get to call that a philosophical mindset and, and, and ignore it, right? Would you accept that from me? 
right? I mean, here you are asking, how can God determine what we do something and also hold us responsible? Well, if, if I just said, instead, instead of answering that, if I just said, well, uh, you have a finite philosophical mindset, and, that's, and you just can't comprehend it, right? If I just said God's God, he can do it, your imagination isn't big enough, are you going to accept that kind of garbage from me? Of course not. So why do you constantly utilize that line of thinking on your side? Right? You have never and can never justify that things can be occurring or existing apart from God. You've, you can never, you'll never be able to prove that. You'll always be assuming it. And yet you're going to accuse me of having a finite philosophical mindset. That's, that's astounding. That ignores the claims of the systematic itself because the systematic itself doesn't say that God knows what a free creature will do and therefore creates them anyway. They actually say God decrees all things, which would include the desires, the choices, the actions of that creature. So the reason that on Calvinism God knows what will happen is because he has decreed it to happen. He has determined that it would happen. Correct. Not that he sees it will happen and then permits it to happen anyway. That would be basic Arminianism. Or uh, All right. So again, check out episode two for an exhaustive look at can God foreknow future free will choices, right? God can only know what he causes. That's my claim. Because the only things that can come to pass or occur are things that God causes to occur by his sustaining power, right? That's my logical claim. Hebrews 1.3 is my, lo- my scriptural answer. Um, the ball's in your court to explain how my claim is not valid, okay? In order for my claim to be invalid, in order for God to be knowing things that he does not cause, you need to prove and demonstrate and justify that there can be things that God didn't cause in the first place. In order to do so, as I pointed out in episode one, you're going to have to adopt a form of semi-deism and say that God can create self-sustained, self-powered, self-determined entities that can be running around in this universe autonomously, causing their own causes and effects, powering themselves, uh, and, and, and somehow you're disconnecting God from all of it, right? The Bible knows nothing of that garbage, right? And, and, and you can always turn it back on, once again, the free will side, Right? When you turn this back on the free will side, you have the free will side believing that God created people knowing what they would do. And, and again, you're forgetting that God, God's foreknowledge of what they will do is based upon his own actions. In this case, when God creates them, where God creates them, how God creates them, in what way God creates them, to what parents God creates them, genetic situations, all the way down the line, that's all based upon God's action, right? When, where, how. That's all God's choice, God's action. That is what his foreknowledge is based upon, right? So as soon as you admit uh, that, that those things are connected to your choices and the way you live your life, right, and the things that God knows you will do, you're admitting that God is merely foreknowing the results of his own actions. He's not, for, he's not foreknowing the results of your magical self-caused, self-determined free will. And it gets, wor- it, it gets worse for you when you once again admit the fact that God could have created people differently, once you admit that God could have created people differently, different time, different place, different parents, different situations, now you're admitting that God has a million different ways that he can create each person with each life being different, with each different thoughts and actions and choices, and who's it ultimately up to as to which life, quote-unquote life, that person is, is given or is created or which situation they're created in. It's up to God, the creator, obviously. So where is your free will in any of that, right? If it if it wasn't up to you when, where, or how you were created, it was ultimately up to God, then the entire point here is that your beloved free will is nothing more than an illusion. Well, basic free will theism altogether. I mean, all, all non-Calvinist, all non-theistic uh, determinists that have been Christians throughout human history have held to the perspective that God knows things that he doesn't determine, and that we believe that's a supernatural quality of God. 
Right. You'll never be able to justify it. You're just going to call it a mystery. God's God, he can do it. Covered that all in episode two. That he doesn't gain knowledge, but he knows things by the essence of who he is as an omniscient being, just like we don't. Right. So God learns things about things he has nothing to do with, but somehow is not gaining that knowledge. God is foreknowing things that are determined by things outside of himself, and yet he's not learning that knowledge from outside of himself. That is certainly a magical thing. Congratulations. We don't know how he creates something for nothing. We don't know how he knows the future free choices of creatures. We just believe that he does. Now, that's mysterious, but it's not contradictory. What's contradictory is saying that God does things that, that, that ultimately we're held responsible for doing, and that God is ultimately somehow not to be blamed for things that he ultimately does or that he ultimately brings to pass. You mean like hardening Pharaoh's heart and then destroying him? That, that's just blatant contradictions in our estimation. Now, or predestining the people murder his son and then judging them for that murder. You see... It's over and over, guys. All I can say is we've covered it, and it's just funny how you can say that those are just blatant contradictions when the Bible teaches clearly God determines all things, including sin, and holds people responsible for those sins, right? The only time it appears to contradict is when you falsely assume that responsibility to God presupposes freedom from God. I have demonstrated over and over and over how the Bible teaches you're never free from God in the first place, so your false assumption is obliterated, and all you're left with is the facts. God determines all things and holds people responsible. Are there philosophical I issues? Of course. That's what Boethius is handling back in the 5th and 6th century with the consolation of philosophy. Um, these, these uh, goodness, Aquinas and uh, Lewis and so many others get into the eternal now view of God, that God's omnipresent, therefore he knows all things because he's present at all times versus him being deterministic. He's not determining all things at all times. He knows all things at all times because he is at all places at all times, and it's beyond our full comprehension. It's mysterious. That's what this whole debate's been about with regard to these issues. Right. Uh, just in, you know, a quick note, the eternal now view is um, an absurd view, because that would make creation eternal, okay? Creation is not eternal, right? Time unfolds. Creation unfolds. But I will point out, as I did um, in episode one and two, that the omni-attributes of God, when you're going to consider God being omnipresent, God is omnipresent because he is upholding everything he's created, right? If Hebrews 1.3 is true, if God upholds the universe by his power, he must be present with that which he is upholding. God must be present with everything he created, because by definition, that creation relies upon his sustaining power for continued existence. And this also ties directly into why God knows the future. God knows the future because he knows exactly the way in which he will uphold the universe in the future, right? To say that God knows the next moment of time is nothing more than saying God knows how he himself is going to exert his own power over the next moment of time, right? Covered this in past episodes. And by the way, just very quickly, you know, open theism seems to be gaining ground and it's being talked about a lot, um... In, the, in these particular discussions, the idea that the future is open, God does not know the future because it hasn't happened yet. I'm telling you right now, the easiest way and the, the clearest way to refute open theism is what I just said. If Hebrews 1.3 is true, then the next moment of time cannot even come to pass unless God brings it to pass by sustaining power, right? The next moment of time cannot come to pass independent of God's sustaining power. So to say that God does not know the future... To say that God does not know the next moment of time is to say that God doesn't even know how he himself is going to exert his own sustaining power over the next moment of time. That's absurd, right? It's absurd to say that God does not know the next moment of time if he's the one who has to sustain it, right? It's the biggest, easiest, clearest refutation of open theism from the start. And we don't even need to get into all these anthropomorphic language verses and God repenting and changing his mind and so on and so forth. Again, you can make sense out of all those verses if you've done what I've done in this episode and distinguish between God in the ultimate transcendent position and the way he interacts on the storyline level. But then you go back and you say, what does the Bible say? 
how does the Bible depict God? The Bible depicts God as not tempting men to sin. Uh, right. God doesn't tempt anybody, right? And God determining that someone will be tempted is not the same thing as saying that God tempted somebody. The Bible depicts God as separate from sin. The Bible depicts God as pride and lust being not from the Father, but from the world. Right. On the, the Bible depicts sin coming from the world on the storyline level. And yet that same Bible says that God sustains sinners, sustains that world of which sin is occurring at all moments, even while the sin's occurring. That same Bible uh, in Romans 11.36 said that the sinful disobedience of Israel came, quote-unquote, from God. You have to make sense and square these things, right? You can't just ignore them. What does Calvinism do? Calvinism brings those two things back together under the quote-unquote sovereign decree. Right. We make a proper understanding and relationship between the two things, the storyline level and what God has determined and, and his upholding of all things. That God decrees, i.e. causally determines, brings to pass all things, which includes the besetting sins of man. Correct. And that's what we're pushing back on. That's what we're saying. No, that does not fit. That is a, a blatant inconsistency. Not inconsistency at all. We've demonstrated both of those things from Scripture. It's baffling in, in its inconsistency, in fact. It, it's absolutely absurd. What's baffling and absurd are the assumptions that you make. To say that if God determines that someone be tempted, that's the same thing as saying God tempted them, is bafflingly absurd, right? The, the, baff, the bafflingly absurdness is on your side, right? To say that if God determines that someone will be kept from accepting Christ because of their sinful heart— that is identical to saying that God is keeping them from accepting Christ. That's baffling, right? I, I don't understand how those things flow through your head and how you can consider them to be the same thing. Um, so backing up just a little bit, listen to, listen to what um, Doug is saying and listen to his answer. Direct consequence of this blindness, what is it that is stirring up record levels of racial enmity in our day? The answer... Yeah, what, what is it that's stirring up racial enmity in our day? Divine decrees. Because everything is happening according to the divine decree. Right. And what does it look like in time? Right? Two answers. Now you may say, well, there's, there's, there's second causations, though, Leighton. You're, you're not talking about first and second causations. Okay, but you're, you're asking the question of the cause of something. You're asking the question, what, what causes this? What's, what's making this happen? What, what, is, what is the root behind it? And on Calvinism, God is. Period. That, that, that's what it is. It's not the only answer, dude. Again, yes, God is the ultimate causative power that underlies all things. Hebrews 1.3 teaches that. Acts 17.28 teaches that. Colossians 1.17 teaches that. Romans 11.36 teaches that. Every example of scripture I've given that shows that God is in control of what is occurring, and yet there's storyline level reasons why it's occurring, teaches that. Right? So this, this whole idea of causation, there's a difference between the causation of God and upholding the, the universe, right? His ultimate metaphysical, he, he is the ultimate cause behind all things, right? Moment by moment by moment, it's all coming to pass. He is causing it all. That's the vertical relationship, right? God's underlying sustaining power. But when you look at that horizontal storyline line, right, and you're looking at one thing and the next thing and the next thing, there is a step-by-step -step causal chain that we can observe and answer the questions as well as to why things are happening horizontally, right? Just because God's causative power underlies it all and connects it all, doesn't mean that you can't look at a storyline level and see the connections. Now, you may say, because God has decreed for this sin or this racial, uh, you know, uh, these racial issues being raised up in our culture today, you may say God is the one who decreed this thing and he's doing it through these means. Okay, well then say that. <laughs> I've said that throughout the entire episode. Just come out right out and say, well, God has sovereign and unchangeably decreed these racial tensions for his own self-glorification. And Doug Wilson believes that. 
Everybody who knows that Doug Wilson's Calvinist knows he believes that. But we don't need to once again bring this footnote into every discussion that we have, right? We It's not like I have to go through every step of my life and every discussion that I have with people, and we're here we are talking about false teachings and this and that, and I have to say, oh, by the way, don't forget, God determined it all, God determined it all, God determined it all, over and over and over and over. Well, how does that even follow? And it may be mysterious as to why he's doing it, but we, we know, based upon our claims of our systematic, that he is. And it's, it's not mysterious. He has purposes in it at all. But Douglas and most Calvinists, when they're addressing these kinds of issues, don't come right out and just say that. Why? It, because some contexts don't require it. For the very reason that I've mentioned before. Some positions don't need to be refuted. They just need to be clearly stated. And people will know to reject them if they're, if they're just clearly stated. And if Calvinists were that clear about what they believe, then I think most people would walk away from Calvinism pretty quickly. I think we're very clear about it. Everybody knows the differences, knows what knows what we believe. Well, once again, if you're going to insist, um, l l let's just see how absurd this is, right? If you're going to insist that every time a Calvinist is just going through daily life and talking about what's going on around them and how, you know, false teaching this, sinful that, and how we combat evil and on and on, if you're going to insist that every time we talk about those things that we need to uh, say, oh, by the way, God determined it, that's just as absurd as me requiring you to say, whenever you're talking about storyline level things, to say, oh, by the way, God allowed it and could have stopped it, right? But is you not pointing that out on every single topic you address? Oh, God could have stopped it, but he chose to allow it. But by you not pointing that out, are you being dishonest? Are you trying to hide things from people? And and does it make your, your view inconsistent when somebody like me comes along and points it out? Oh, by the way, God allowed it. Oh, by the way, God created the people involved. Oh, by the way, God created the universe in which it comes to pass. Oh, by the way, God upholds the universe as it comes to pass. Does the fact that you're not mentioning those ultimate things as a Christian make you dishonest or misleading or trying to make your position more palatable? Right? Of course not. There are just different contexts of discussion. Right? And you don't get to come across every Calvinist you meet and just in the midst of a particular context of a, of a discussion of a storyline level issue, like why people are, why, what keeps people from accepting Christ? Why do people reject Christ? Just start ranting on about how, oh, hey, God, God determined it, God determined it, God determined it. In the exact same way, it would be wrong for me to just rant, chant over and over and over, God, you believe God allowed it, you believe God allowed it. Why are you fighting against what God allowed? Doesn't God know better than you? If God allowed it, doesn't that make the thing good? I mean, all of these really stupid objections that come against Calvinism can be flipped back on you with a just from a slightly different angle, and yet they're all equally along the same lines, right? So the whole point here is that there's different contexts of discussion. You want to talk about God determining all things? Happy to have that discussion. But you don't just get to say that because Calvinists aren't always bringing that up every time we talk about something that we're being dishonest. That's, that's absurd. The answer to this most relevant question is sin. Sin is the culprit. Sin is doing this. And what is the sin in question? The sin is the flat refusal to see that Christ is the only way to any kind of true glory, and the consequent vainglorious demand that everything in the cosmos outside of you, God included, must cater to you and to your aggrieved feelings. Now, again, I think Doug's reading a book. He goes on to give a, a, a bit of a long answer, but it's all along the same lines as what you just heard, and the idea of sin being what it, what is you know keeping people from accepting Christ. And here's what Leighton follows up with. Yeah, and again, this is one of the issues that we run into quite often, is that I listen to Al Mohler, for example, in his briefing, and 99% of everything he says, I'm, I'm right in line with him, agree with a lot of what he says, agree with this, this particular blog from Doug Wilson. What I'm pointing out is, is how inconsistent 
it appears to those of us on the outside of Calvinistic soteriology how these kinds of claims can be made while holding to a theistic deterministic philosophy. It's very simple. Again, transcendent position, storyline level position. If I author a story, everything comes to pass exactly how I plan and purpose it to pass. I have a purpose in everything that comes to pass, whether or not you can see it right from, from your point of view. Whether or not we can see the purposes God has in particular things does not mean that those purposes aren't there. Um, it just goes on and on and on. And I understand that people have certain perceptions, right? But you're not helping by insisting that Calvinists aren't allowed to give the storyline level answer, right? You, you've consistently said that, well, if God determined it, that's basically all that matters, this is what seems inconsistent to us. Now, maybe it doesn't seem inconsistent to you, or maybe you're willing to just swallow that seeming inconsistency as a paradox um, and just say it is what it is, Leighton, and, uh, and, then, and, and berate anybody who's not willing to swallow that, that seeming inconsistent you know, uh, contradiction, is what we would call it, seeming contradiction in, in your mind, maybe, but it's, it's, it's a contradiction in my brain, and therefore I have, I've rejected it. I don't find it to be true. Right, so... You see something as contradictory, and upon that basis, you reject it. I, I'm in full support of that. If something is contradictory, it should be rejected, right? We should reject contradictions. But I think I have demonstrated that there's nothing contradictory about it at all. You're, you're forcing it to be contradictory by not allowing all of Calvinism to, to be considered or factored in. You're forcefully insisting that if God determined it, then the storyline level reasons don't matter, and you can't ask storyline level questions, right? And this is where we're, we're trying to say, Calvinists, we love you, and we agree with a lot of the things you're saying, because again, you use our vocabulary and have a different dictionary, and so you say a lot of the same things, bring a lot of the good warnings that many of us may agree with. We, we say a lot of the same things, because a lot of the same thing. I mean, we're both, we're all Christians, right? We're, we're living in the same world, and again, storyline level, both sides can give storyline level answers or storyline level questions. That's why we're giving the same answers as you. But you're insisting that those are the only answers that can be given. But while doing so, hold to a behind-the-scenes theology that ultimately has God as the one causally determining the very thing that you're bemoaning. Yeah. B behind-the-scenes theology. Um, I have no problem saying that there is a behind-the-scenes aspect or outlook on God's relationship to what is unfolding. I don't know how you can once again read through the account of Pharaoh without understanding that there is a down-to-earth, storyline-level account of what is occurring, Pharaoh hardening his heart, and there is a behind-the-scenes, divine revelation outlook given to us on that exact same occurrence of heart hardening, right? One is a storyline view, one is a transcendent view, one is the behind-the-scenes view, if you want to call it that. Um, same thing given in Romans 11, right? What was the down-to-earth view? Israel's disobedience. Disobedience because of sin. And what was the behind-the-scenes view? God was the one working those things out. Right? You can go all the way down the line. I have no problem with the idea of a storyline-level view and a behind-the-scenes divine revelation view. Well, well, here's one. Here's one. This is not the one I was looking for, but Brenton is our, one of our resident Calvinists. And uh, he says, sin equals ungodliness. We would agree with that. Okay? Same vocabulary, different dictionary. Uh, ungodliness. Okay? It does not come from God. Now, again, we have quotes that from Piper's website that it is from God. So you disagree with John Piper on that particular point. Great. Now, again, uh, Paul said in Romans 11.36 that the disobedience of Israel came from God. Disobedience is sin. Paul said it came from God. Are you going to be fair to the obvious point of what is meant by that? 
there's a there's a difference between something coming from God in the terms of God being the creator and the sustainer and something coming from God on the storyline level, right? God tempts no one. God himself tempts no one. That is not the same thing as saying that God does not cause people to be tempted. So if, if, if you're going to, you obviously disagree with Piper in saying that certain things, sinful things, are coming, quote unquote, from God or from the hand of God. So how would you address Romans 11.36? What is Paul saying is for all things that are from God and through God and to God? Right? If it's not the disobedient, the very disobedience of Israel covered in that, that very chapter, a couple verses earlier. We, we stand together against John Piper. Way to go. So we can make it known Brenton Stanfield disagrees with John Piper's website. Great. Good. Okay. <laughs> we, all, we all agree with that. See, and he just tried to paint this Calvinist in the chat of saying sin doesn't come from God. And then John Piper says that all things come from God. Again, you're, you're completely blurring the distinction between a transcendent view and a storyline level view, and then accusing people of being inconsistent based upon your forced ignoring of those two things. It's literally the lack of God's work in you. Okay, so what's the lack of God's work in you mean? Does that mean separation from God, right? So right, so what I would assume this Calvinist is talking about is that God's lack of work in you on the storyline level, which I already addressed early in the episode, God is not working sin in people by the Holy Spirit, right? It is the absence of the Holy Spirit on the storyline level that is resulting in sin, that type of interaction on the storyline level is different than, it is to be distinguished from God's metaphysical causative upholding of the universe moment by moment by moment. There's a difference there. So when you say lack of God's work in you, that means God's over here, and what, what are we over here? Would that mean we would be autonomous? The very thing that Calvinists say we're not, whenever we talk about libertarian freedom of the will, that means we're acting autonomously from, from, from God, right? Right. We reject autonomy. God is not over there while you're over here, right? You might be able to say that of the storyline level, right? God, the Holy Spirit is not present with unsaved sinners. So you could say they're over there and God's somewhere else, I suppose. But when you're considering God in the transcendent position, God's omnipresent, right? The Holy Spirit would be uh, omnipresent, right? Um, so how do you square these two things? They're not contradictions. They're not inconsistencies. There's only one way to do it, and that is to properly recognize God in the transcendent position, and and man on the storyline level. So, if it's a lack of God's work in you, then are you saying that God didn't sovereignly and unchangeably decree for you to do that sin? Why do Calvinists therefore argue that Pilate and Judas did what God in his predetermined counsel and his will determined beforehand that they would do, and therefore they use that as their proof text that libertarian free will does not exist? And of course, we're not, you know, this is why I don't really just throw out proof texts, quote unquote, because people can try to limit them and say, well, that's just a special case. I use foundational verses like Hebrews 1.3. And with Leighton having just said, basically, that God's over there and I'm over here and I'm autonomous. Um, how do you square that claim with the Hebrews 1.3, which says that God is upholding your existence at all times? How is God over there and you're over here? when you have to be upheld by God at all times, right? And if you say, well, that's a different category, that's God in the ultimate position, well, now you're just giving my answers, right? You're just making the exact dis distinguishment that I'm making. You're pointing out that on the storyline level, right, God is not having, quote-unquote, having something to do with you when you're sinning, right, in terms of the Holy Spirit or some sort of direct interaction on a storyline level. God is not working sin in you on the storyline level. But you're forced to recognize that even when you sin, he's upholding your existence, right? And I'm not, 
I'm not sure how much closer you can get metaphysically to the idea of sin than having God upholding your existence while you sin. That's the point. And when, when you're going to say that, you know, whether or not free will is existing, God's over there and I'm over here, that might be true of the storyline level, but it's not true of God as your transcendent sustainer. Now he's going to go on to give a couple more quotes from Calvin. As is consistent with what we read from John Calvin, like in this quote uh, from John Calvin, quote, we hold that God is the disposer and ruler of all things, that from the remotest eternity, according to his own wisdom, he, dec he decreed what he was to do, and now by his power execute what he decreed. Hence we maintain that by his providence, not heaven and earth and inanimate creatures only, but also the counsels and wills of men are so governed as to move exactly in the course which he has destined. So the... Right. Okay. So that... All of what Calvin just said there is the logical conclusion of Hebrews 1.3. If God upholds the universe by his power at all times, then nothing can come to pass except what God brings to pass by his power. Period. Period. The, the counsels and wills of men are what? They're governed to move exactly in the course that God has destined. Okay? Right. God has determined exactly what he himself will bring about in the future. Right? Including the hearts and minds and desires of creatures. If Hebrews 1.3 is true, then you can't even think a thought unless God's power brings it about. And if you say that you can, then you're introducing semi-deistic heresy. The idea that God created you as a self-sustained, autonomous, self-determined entity, and you are powering yourself. Right? If it's not God's power ultimately behind the thoughts that are passing through your brain, whose power is it then? Right? Are you dare going to say it's yours? Are you an ultimate power in this universe? Semi-deistic dualism. The Bible knows nothing of it. That is according to John Calvin. Now, maybe you agree, disagree with John Calvin on that point. Great. But then don't promote Calvinism. Um, promote something else. Call, call it Britonism or, you know, something else if you'd like. But that's not Calvinism. Um, and again, understanding God's transcendent position as working all things metaphysically and causatively, Leighton is blurring that and blurring the distinction between that and the ways God interacts in time. Right? He thinks that God's interaction in time is identical to God's upholding of all things as they come about. Creatures are so governed by the secret counsel of God that nothing happens but what he has knowingly and willingly decreed. So nothing happens, nothing would include the sin to reject Christ, the sin to molest a child, the sin to rape a, a, a person, the sin to be a bigot racist. Um, he, he has knowingly and willingly decreed that thing which Doug just spent an hour or 15 minutes on on his blog critiquing. Uh, no problem. Yep. All the emotional stuff you want to bring up, God has knowingly and willingly determined it. Right? And even in your view, you believe that God knowingly and willingly allowed something that he could have easily stopped. Reactive determination is no less determination than active determination. Right? God knowingly and willingly allowed something to occur that he could have easily stopped in your view. All those horrible things you listed off, God determined that they would take place. Maybe not causally, in your view, but reactively by allowing it, right? So what's the difference between knowingly and willingly determining something, actively planning and purposing it, or knowing it and willingly reactively determining something by allowing it, right? What's the difference there? You can argue a difference in causation, but you cannot argue a difference in determination. Both of these views have God determining that something take place. And again, it doesn't matter if you want to stress some sort of causal disconnection between you and God. It doesn't matter if you want to try to make yourself autonomous. God is still more powerful than you. God still could have stopped what you did, right? 
all you're doing along, you're not escaping the end result here. You're not escaping the ultimate point that God is determining what does and does not occur by pointing to causation. All you're doing is committing blasphemous heresy in the process because you're going to end up denying verses like Hebrews 1.3, which says that you're never free from God because God upholds your existence at all moments, moment by moment by moment. So he's critiquing what God has sovereignly and knowingly decreed for these people to do for his own self-glorification. And that's what we see as blatantly inconsistent. And, and if, if, it's, if it's inconsistent for a Calvinist to critique or complain or combat something that God has determined, then it's just as inconsistent for you to critique or complain or combat something that God has allowed. The all-wise God of the universe permitted, to, permitted it to occur. Who are you to complain? Who are you to fight against it? Doesn't God know better than you? How dare you question what God has allowed to occur? And if you say, well, God allowed it because he had a purpose in it, well, that sounds a lot like what Calvinists say, that God determined it because he had a purpose in it. And if you say, well, we combat it because God commands us to, well, that sounds a lot like what Calvinists say. In fact, you might go so far as to say that one of the reasons that God did allow something to come to pass was so that you could combat it because it would con contribute to your sanctification, right? God had a purpose in allowing it, so on and so forth. That sounds a lot like what Calvinists say. Because once again, these are ultimate questions that both sides are addressing, and the free will side rarely seems to see or realize that they are not escaping the whole God's in control of it all point. Um, we can go on for more of these. They're, they go on forever, obviously. Um, quote, but those who, while professed to be disciples of Christ, still seek free will in man, notwithstanding his own being lost and drowned in spiritual destruction, labor under manifold delusion. So he's saying we, we're delusional for insisting that men have free will. Yeah, I said that earlier. And we're so we're laboring under a manifold delusion, making heterogeneous, uh, heterogeneous uh, mixture of inspired doctrine and philosoph philosophical opinions, and so airing us onto both. So, John Calvin is ultimately accusing us of the same thing we're accusing him of. So yeah, I said earlier in the episode, and I you know stand by it. You are. I will openly say that you are under a delusion when you insist that man has free will. Right. Sorry if that offends you. You just admitted that you're accusing us of a delusion as well. But the point is that you are delusional if you think that you can ever be free from the God who created and sustains you, right, at all moments. You are delusional if you think that you are your own self-powered, self-caused entity. You're delusional. You are delusional if you think that there can th be things occurring in this universe apart from the sustaining causative power of God. You are delusional if you think that God's over there and you're over here causing your own choices and thoughts and actions i stand by that that is a delusion that the bible knows nothing of uh, so it goes both ways um obviously one side is going to accuse the other of having philosophical and uh, erroneous conclusions with regard to their their theology but we're actually looking at the actual claims of the system itself we're not just speculating and this is one of the issues that i have with calvinist is is with regard to the two fallacy and other things is oftentimes the calvinist will not critique an actual claim of our scholars they will critique a philosophical conclusion that they're drawing about our position. So, for example, with omniscience, well, because God knows all things before he creates, therefore he must determine those things. He must be the one who is the uh, the, the one who sovereignly and unchangeably decrees, not by permission, but by his sovereign will, that thing that happens. Well, none of our, none of our theologians are claiming that. Right. It doesn't matter if you're claiming it or not. If it can be logically demonstrated, right, that it, 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 that it is, in fact, it logically follows that, for example, as I pointed out, that even in God permitting something, he's determining that it happens, then you cannot escape the whole God's in control of it part, right? As soon as you start with God created, as soon as you admit that God could have created differently, 
then you're admitting that it's up to God which creation is coming about, right? This is inescapable. They are making that claim based upon their finite, limited, linear understanding of how omniscience might work as God gaining knowledge based upon a, a timeline of God doing something prior to something else in a linear way. Right, so, so even though it's all logically valid, and since, especially since it's going to refute your position, right, the whole foreknowledge of God, remember in previous episodes I said the foreknowledge of God is the absolute death knell of the free will position, right? And he's just going to sit here and accuse the other side when we make these sorts of accusations and, and, and go down the lines of justifying it, that, well, we just have a finite, limited, right, understanding. If we only knew more or understood more, then these apparent problems, right, would just cease to exist. And, and I just reject this, right? If a contradiction exists in what you already know, then knowing more is not going to fix the contradiction. You need to fix the contradiction itself that is present in what you already know. And I just think it's funny how earlier he mentions that, that Calvinists will appeal to paradox or mystery on certain things, which I've already said they shouldn't, right? We don't hear on this podcast, and I encourage my fellow Calvinists to, to stop doing that, to, to seek the answers, because there are answers. But he himself said just a little earlier, that what Calvinists see as a mystery, Leighton sees as a contradiction. And upon the basis of being a contradiction, Leighton rejects it. Well, that's exactly what we do to your view, right? We see your view as inconsistent, illogical, contradictory, and upon that basis, we reject it. But here you are wanting to cover your contradictions up with accusations of just limited understanding and finite minds. Right? And, th and they're expecting that to make it all okay. They are making that claim based upon their finite, limited, linear understanding of how omniscience might work. How easy would that be anytime you level an argument against Calvinism? If I just said you're making that argument with your limited understanding, and then just use that as an excuse to ignore it, is that going to get anybody anywhere? Not really, right? Would, would you accept it if I just came out and said, you know what? God determines all things, including sin, and still holds you responsible. And if you see that as a contradiction, then you just have a limited, finite understanding. Your imagination just isn't big enough, right? Would you accept that? Of course not. You want answers. You demand logically consistent biblical answers. And that's why I go through the efforts that I go through in this podcast of explaining and justifying my claims. I don't just make claims. I justify them. Hopefully, with logic and scripture, both, right? I don't, I don't just say it and then appeal to mystery and cover it up with, well, your just finite mind can't understand it. They are making that claim based upon their finite, limited, linear understanding of how omniscience might work. Um, and that is a philosophical conclusion that our scholars aren't making. But they're, they're making claims about our views, not based upon our actual claims, but based upon philosophical conclusions they come to based upon our claims. We're not doing the same thing. We are, we are actually critiquing the actual claims of Calvinists regarding, for example, him bringing about molestations and rapes and murders for his own glorification. Right, but this is, again, you're not realizing you are doing that very thing. You just don't realize it. We've already shown how you falsely conclude that if God is working something transcendently, that therefore that's the only reason it's occurring, and you can just ignore the storyline level reasons, and you just say, God did it, that's the end of the story, nothing more needs to be said, nothing else to see here. That's your own false conclusion about our view which I've gone through a lot of effort here to try to correct. While at the same time also claiming that people are robbing him of his glory. The very thing that he has ordained them to do for his own glory is supposedly robbing him of his glory. This, this is the baffling side of deterministic theology. And there, once again, 
tried to paint it as Calvinists are saying that sin glorifies God. We don't say that. I don't think I've ever seen one say that. And if they have, shame, shame on them. I've made it clear in this episode uh, exactly what Calvinists are talking about. Saying God determines all things for his glory. The all things can include a lot of bad things that rob him of his glory, but will ultimately result in him being glorified. Just as Paul says in Romans 11.36, From him and through him unto him are all things, including sinful disobedience of Israel, to him be the glory forever. Amen. That does not mean the sinful disobedience of Israel glorified God, but it does mean that God had a purpose in bringing those things about, which resulted in his glorification. So I hope that you guys have enjoyed this particular episode responding to accusations of inconsistency. Uh, Before we end it, I'd like to summarize with a a few quick points. Number one, Calvinists, again, are not saying that sin glorifies God. Number two, the Bible has countless examples of God determinatively bringing about something that robs him of glory so that he can glorify himself. And it doesn't matter if you believe that God did that by actively planning it or by reactively allowing it and working it into his plan, you still have God determining that bad things occur for the purpose of his own glorification. Do not fall for the distractions away from this critical point. And number three, I have demonstrated a clear biblical difference between God in the transcendent position, the creator-sustainer position, and God interacting on the storyline level. This is not something invented by Calvinism. This is something that all Christians need to come to grips with and incorporate into their worldview. The God-did-it answer is not the only answer. It might be the ultimate answer, but it's not the only answer. You also have to ask, how did God do it? Did he do it himself on the storyline level? Or did he use various means on the storyline level to bring it about? This is the case the vast majority of the time. Of course we can see God interacting on the storyline level from time to time, or in various ways, most of the time with regards to salvation and sanctification. But when we speak of God's general providence and control over creation, this is what the Bible means when it makes broad, overarching statements about God's control of all things. When the Bible says things like, From him and through him and to him are all things. Or he works all things after the counsel of his will. Or he upholds the universe by his power, and in him all things consist, at all moments. Or that the sparrows don't fall to the ground unless it is by the Father's hand. Or that God formed all our days for us, when as yet there was none, and wrote them in his book. He gives man life and breath and everything else. And that surely God will feed us and clothe us. That that he makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He hardens hearts. He softens hearts. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he pleases. He brings the rain and the snow and the wind. He makes the sun to rise and the trees to grow. Once you properly recognize the position that I have consistently put forth throughout these episodes regarding God's transcendent metaphysical relationship to his creation, all of these verses begin to make perfect sense. These are not special cases. These are merely descriptions and recognitions of God's absolute control of all aspects and categories of his creation. This is what Leighton here mocks as behind-the-scenes theology, quote-unquote. The Bible is divine revelation from God. Yes, he is giving us behind-the-scenes information about himself and his relationship to what he's created. I have absolutely no problem calling it behind-the-scenes theology. And the fact that the free will position would have a problem with this and consider it an invention of Calvinism shows that the free will position really does consider God as just another thing alongside us. According to Leighton, as you heard earlier, we are autonomous from God. We are over here and God is over there. And yet, according to scripture, we live and move and have our very being in God. If you want to call that behind the scenes, so be it. But it is the biblical truth. 
So if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it around. You can find the Consistent Calvinism Podcast on all the major podcasting apps. You can subscribe to the Consistent Calvinism Podcast on YouTube. And you can follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism for updates and fun discussions as well. I'm not quite sure what I'll be doing for the next episode, but we all know there is surely no shortage of material coming out of latent flowers that we can find find something to respond to. I'm sure I'll be able to dig something up. Uh, So we'll, we'll see you guys next time. And remember to stay consistent, my friends.